Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Mike Forche. Mike's a fascinating guy. Would you agree with that? That's what you said, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Mike got into commercial real estate on the title side of the business in 1979 when he joined Nevada Title. He was there until 2017, but was in a variety of ventures that involved construction, development, receivership, even some investments in Macau. We'll get into that a little bit later. Mike holds an AB Unlimited General Engineering and Building Nevada Contractor License. How'd I do? Good. That was a mouthful. He's a licensed broker and property manager and a court-appointed receiver with over 40 cases completed in the 8th Judicial District Court of Nevada and the U.S. District Court. Did I miss anything? No, that's, that's pretty good. Should we get going? Go. Tell us in your own words, who are you? Tell us what you do. My name is Michael Forche. I'm uh, 71 years old. I've been in Las Vegas since 1979. And um, I had a uh, very uh, uh, normal upbringing in a a city called Evansville, Indiana, which is uh, uh, on the Ohio River uh, in southern Indiana. And uh, went to school there and uh, um, participated in athletics and uh, was a was a college athlete as well, and uh, went on to uh, um, the big city in Indiana, which is Indianapolis. And uh, I actually played uh, semi professional football there for two years uh, for a team, and uh, ended up going to work there as an iron worker uh, in Indianapolis, working on high rise buildings because I had a little construction experience. And uh, as time went on, uh, we played football in the summertime. We played in various cities. The team was made up of college guys that went to school mainly around Indiana. And they, uh, from schools like Indiana State, Indiana University, Purdue, uh, Notre Dame, all made up the team called the Indianapolis Capitals, which was for a young man, which was quite something. And the best parallel that I can talk about would be the, the movie Slapshot with Paul Newman, where it was a semi-pro hockey team. And uh, my experience as an iron worker in the off-season and actually during the season was um, working on high-rise construction on beams uh, uh, in the air as much as 20 to 25 floors. And one day I was working and uh, my pants froze to a beam. And that's when I decided I was going to explore a uh, a warmer climate, and I had never been, uh, hadn't traveled much. Uh, I'd been to Florida, and I wanted to go to the West Coast and see what it was like in California. And uh, uh, so I had a college degree and a, a beat-up Volkswagen, and I drove cross-country, and I went out to California, had a few names of people. I met with them. One guy told me, get your real estate license, and I'll hire you. Well, he hired me but didn't pay me, and I found out early that uh, real estate doesn't pay too well just because you have a license. 
but he did put me to work on a couple construction projects he was doing. And one of his holdings was here in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, he sent me up here a couple times to check on it. It was a, like a duplex over by UNLV. So I really enjoyed coming up here. I met a few people here. And uh, I had the feeling that um, this was a unique place. And uh, I remembered a quote by Mark Twain who said, there's really three unique cities in the United States, and they are uh, New York, New Orleans, and San Francisco. I believe if he were alive um, uh, in, the, in the 20th century, he'd have said Las Vegas was the fourth, because there's nothing like Las Vegas. And that led me to uh, um, sort of keep myself interested in, in, uh, in, 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 in moving back to the West Coast, but uh, I got a job with Chicago Title. A friend of mine offered me a job at Chicago Title in Indianapolis. And the job was a marketing uh, representative, which meant I had to uh, call on real estate agents and real estate brokers and try to get business for the, uh, for the Chicago Title. Uh, Is that after officer. you were in California already? Yeah, I'd, went, I'd gone to California and I came back because okay. they gave me a job offer. And California had kind of ran out of gas. And the guy that I was working with moved to Hemet, California, which wasn't uh, where I was uh, living, which was in Orange County and Costa Mesa area. So I stayed there, and then I finally went back to, uh, went back to Indiana. And uh, the uh, blizzard of 77 hit, which was a devastating storm in Indiana. So I had the same feeling as I did when I froze to the beam. <laughs> I had to move on. And not that I'm a sissy and couldn't handle cold weather, but uh, my, uh, my idea was I'd like to go somewhere different. So what happened, I, I had met a, a person from Las Vegas at a, uh, at a picnic for Chicago Title. He was an ex-Chicago Title employee, and he was a, uh, a title company owner here in Las Vegas. And he was re-establishing uh, his company with new ownership and told me to stay in touch because they were thinking about hiring people and I said, well, I'd like to be considered. And so um, he said, well, you need to interview my partner, who's uh, Terry Wright, who's a uh, attorney and a manager of, uh, was a former manager of Chicago Title in Las Vegas. So I got an invitation to come to Las Vegas, and I flew out and I interviewed with, with Terry. And uh, he said, look, we're starting out. We're not ready yet to add a lot of people. But uh, I'll keep you in mind, and when things get a little bit uh, more organized, uh, we'll talk again. And that was in late 1978. Subsequent to that, they hired a marketing uh, uh, consultant from Newport Beach who was a fast-moving, fast-talking guy. And uh, he got in touch with me and said, uh, understand you're looking for uh, uh, work as a commercial rep. And I said, Yes, and uh, I'd like to I'd like to move out there and, and give it a try. And he said, well, why don't you come out? We need to talk. So I came out again, interviewed. They said, you know, we were at the point that time. It was 79. The economy was okay. Uh, Las Vegas had about, I think, less than 400,000 people at the time. And uh, I just liked the, uh, the look of starting over, starting new, and having a lot of uh, freedom to uh, apply my, uh, my, uh, my marketing abilities. So they hired me, and I started in June of 79, 
And uh, about the time I started, the market went down <laughs> due to uh, uh, the Fed interest rates. 1980, it was terrible. There were, you know, interest rates got up in the high teens. The uh, industry was in turmoil. And uh, Las Vegas was chugging along and, and, and doing what they could do to brokers were selling houses and people were selling land. And uh, um, I had a, a start where, you know, I was totally on my own, but I had enough experience to know who was doing what and where the source of business was. So um, I met with Terry, who was running the company at that time, and I said, I've got an idea. I'd like to start pursuing some of these commercial developers. The company, 95% of their business was home sales. Real estate agents, listing homes, selling homes. The title company would handle the escrow and you know typical uh, transactions. Every once in a while, they'd do a land deal. Every once in a while, they might do a small commercial building, but it was almost by accident. So... I went out and decided it was time, since the town was growing rapidly, there was uh, 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 something um, that wasn't being done very effectively, and that was reaching out to the new construction market and the land developers that were in Las Vegas. Most of them were smaller guys that had operations here. So I started to study the market and sit down in the title plan and look at who owned what and then I would always look at, you know. So wait, let me guess. You went online somewhere. You pulled up a there title. There was no plan. online, yeah, no, man. I'm kidding. No, no online. So what did that look like? It was to microfish. Say, <laughs> to say you looked at the title plan. What is that Well, mean? the title plan was microfish at that time. And so you so had to look full, at ownership. That's technology, microfish. Well, it's it 18th century technology. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't. But looking up title records back then, yeah, man, you'd go into records. this like machine and pull these. Yeah, you'd like, go to a you'd go to film. a viewer, yeah, and put a put a piece of microfiche down and and clamp it down and then look through a viewer and you'd see the actual it was black and white, black background, white lettering, mm-hmm. and you'd see these old documents and old patents from the government and you know deeds, transfer deeds, and all that stuff. But so you're sitting there and like your yeah. face is kind of like when you go to the DMV yeah. and they do the eye test. Yeah, you put yeah, little, yeah, yeah. You press your forehead and light comes on. Right. But you're looking inside of a screen, so you your face is covered, so yeah. there's no light coming in, so you right. can see this projection of light on this film. Well, it, was, it wasn't that intense. It just came up on a screen. You didn't so, have your so eyes. So there's nothing like no, that. No. I remember going to the library once yeah, as a yeah, kid, yeah, and that's so, what I was doing with yeah, the microfiche, yeah, yeah, looking yeah. for similar, old similar. newspaper right. stuff is Same, what it was. That's exactly right. All that's right. how it worked. So, so, But was there a mouse? Like, How did you No mouse. How did you read the document? What did you do? What was the you mechanism? Looked, you, you read it. You, you, you just put the thing, it projects yeah, it, and you take it to the next one. Right. There was no button where you pressed it and got a copy. You read it and took notes. But uh, what so I wanted up, I wanted to paint the picture because yeah. we're spoiled today. Yeah, oh, very much. So. If I have a yeah. new agent, I say, all right, here's this login to this software that we pay a lot of money for, mm-hmm. and a couple clicks here, a couple clicks there. You put mm-hmm. any property address in town. There's a picture of the building, right? How big it is, who yeah, owns oh, it. Yeah. You had none of that. None. none so what were you looking nothing. for back then when you're studying the title records? You I said, was looking for who I was looking for names. It wasn't as uh, totally uh, uh, where everything was a single-purpose entity in those days. Yeah. People actually had their names on titles. Now, there were corporations. There were I don't even think there were LLCs in those days, actually. I think that became later. 
But there were entities, but mainly there was a guy that name was on something, whether he signed the transfer of uh, acknowledgement of the transfer of the title. Um, there was always a way to find out who was involved in a transaction. And that's a luxury you had in a title company because you could do that research yourself. Now, you sold it to agents, of course, mm-hmm. but um, the, 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 the element that really allowed me to become uh, uh, proficient and successful at it was I started taking it to the next level because I would uh, go down to the county and pick up copies of the zoning applications. Really, they were land use applications for zoning, variances, all sorts of applications where the county commission had to hear a certain case that a developer building a building was asking for something. And so those were, sometimes they were 25 pages, sometimes they were 100 pages. And people appeared before the county commission. Many times it was a civil engineer or an attorney uh, or some other representative of their company. And these meetings were usually around six or seven o'clock at night in the old building down on second street there, which was the blue County building before the red sandstone building was built over uh, off Bonneville there. This was the original uh, where the County commission meetings were held and uh, right next to the, the courthouse, which is now a vacant lot where they have concerts. Anyway, I would go down there at, at whatever time it was, six thirty, seven o'clock, and I would sit there in the audience and watch these proceedings. And if there was one where a guy was going to, uh, um, uh, was attempting to get zoning for a subdivision or an apartment complex or a strip mall or some kind of development, I would try to uh, go out in the lobby and meet that guy when he was leaving and hand him my business card and say, I'm with Mike, I'm Mike Forche, I'm with Nevada Title Company. I'd really appreciate a chance at your business. Most of the time, I said, I already got a title company, or who are you, and uh, see you later, no thanks. But I got a lot of bites, and it really uh, meant I was doing something right. And I, I recognize it because I don't think the other companies who were our competitors were doing that. And then I would study the water uh, development and how the water district was branching out because where water was, development was coming later or the developers were bringing the water to certain spots. So I would get all the information I could about public infrastructure, where it was going, what it was planned. All that was public information. So I really studied that because I, I really didn't know anybody here. I had very uh, very limited social life, so I really worked on uh, uh, trying to meet people for a lot of reasons, mainly for uh, my job. And um, then it sort of led to the next level, which was um, getting those kind of people to be uh, part of Nevada uh, Title's customer base to keep calling on them. And then, uh, you know, we decided that, uh, you know, somebody's doing these casino transactions. Somebody out there is doing these loans that uh, are, are, are being made to casinos, which require title insurance. And they require, uh, you know, a uh, construction loan in most cases. So um, it was, it was uh, quite something because the company didn't do anything 
with gaming at all. We didn't have any customers in gaming, didn't do any business with the, with the casinos. And, you know, Terry and I said, no, I said, well, if you were in Detroit, you wouldn't avoid doing business with the, with the automotive industry. <laughs> Somebody's doing that business. Mm-hmm. It might as well be us. So he agreed 100%, and he, was, he supported me at every step of the way. And uh, he let me, uh, you know, basically uh, self, self-supervise. So I started making a point of finding out some of these um, decision makers that were in the casinos at the time, which was a wide variety of characters, as everybody knows. How and did you... So you, you found uh, names on microfiche. You found mm-hmm. more names on zoning applications. You followed uh, what the water district was doing for mm-hmm. gaming. Where was the pond for you to go research? Well, a lot of them got their name in the paper quite a bit, so for <laughs> a lot of reasons. But but uh, uh, it was more or less, uh, uh, it, it happened more or less unfolded this way. One of the, one of the girls at Nevada Title, one of the employees there, uh, was an assistant escrow officer, and her uncle uh, was from Indiana, like me, had been in Las Vegas since the 1940s, and uh, he had uh, been in the business. He was a casino host at the Sands Hotel, which was very prominent at the time, and he had the uh, wonderful uh, name that uh, no one would forget. His name was Blackie Dardine, and uh she says, my uncle knows a lot of people. You should meet him. So I went over to the Sands Hotel, and uh, she told me, go over there Thursday night, and he, he'll, he expects you. So I went into the Sands Hotel. In those days, there were, you know, nobody had a cell phone. Nobody had anything close to that. You'd stand at a phone bank, and you'd page uh, whoever you wanted to speak to. So... I got on the phone. I said, I can speak to Blackie Dardine. Well, the lady said, George Dardine, telephone, please. And I was sitting there and listened for him to come on the phone, and uh, um, nothing happened. And then I had a tap on my back. He says, I'm right behind you. So I met this man who was impeccably dressed. He was perfectly groomed and just to the max, and the quintessential casino host very polite, very soft-spoken. He says, let's go get a cup of coffee. So he took me in the coffee shop, didn't know me from anybody. And he said, "Uh, so what do you do? And I said, well, I work for this company called Nevada Title, and we're in generally a segment of the real estate business where we handle transactions as a neutral third party and issue policies of title insurance. He goes, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, that's it. What do you need from me? Well, how can I help you? I said, I'm trying to meet people that are looking for properties here in Las Vegas or own properties here or just in general, also people in the casino industry who are planning additions or would be involved in the sale of a property or, or something like that. He goes, okay. He says, let me think about this. And I said, okay. So, you know, he calls me up and says, uh, uh, I got a guy. You got to meet this guy. So I'd go over, meet the guy, and uh, some of them were not real productive. I met them, and they were looking for a piece of land, or they were, you know, an investor looking for something to put money in. And and uh, uh, so one time he called me up and he said, uh, 
um, you need to meet uh, these guys that uh, 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 that I know pretty well. And uh, he says, they're, they're already doing some real estate deals here. I said, fine. I said, I'd love to meet them. He says, well, you're going to have to go down to, to Los Angeles. And I said, oh, okay, I'll go down there. And I said, well, well, who are they? He goes, well, it's a, it's a, it's a guy named Jerry Buss and uh, Frank Mariani. And I said, Jerry Buss? I said, don't they own the Lakers? He goes, yeah. He says, I think they, they do. They just bought the Lakers uh, in a big transaction. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's really something. He goes, yeah. He says, they're customers of mine. They're great guys. He said, I'll, I'll make sure they know when you're coming and you go down there and, uh, and meet them. And I went down to L.A. and I took a taxi to their office. And we were driving around on Wilshire Boulevard near the 405. And I had an address. And the cab driver had an address. And we pulled up in front of this sort of beat-up-looking building that had a drugstore on the bottom. And, and uh, the address, there was no door. So we drove around the back, and there was some, like, metal fire stairs. And there was a sign that had the address above it. So I got out of the taxi, and I figured, this has got to be it. I walk in, and there's a lady sitting behind the desk, and she had curlers in her hair. There was a dead plant in the corner, and the, the sofa was, had a big rip in it. And uh, I walked in, and I said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Mike Forche. I'm here to see uh, Frank Mariani. And she goes, yeah, okay, uh, he'll be right out. Sit over there. So I'm going, these guys are, you know, they are the guys that own the Lakers. This is this is amazing because I thought I was going to be in some Beverly Hills high-rise street. This guy comes walking out, real friendly. Looked like he hadn't combed his hair in about uh, two weeks. <laughs> and they had he had, like, mustard on his shirt. And he goes, you, you Mike? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, Frank Mariani, come on in. And I walk in, and him and Jerry Buss are sitting there eating lunch, and they got – French fries and food spread out everywhere. He goes, yeah, you're Blackie's guy. Yeah, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff. We've already bought 53 houses in in uh, in Las Vegas. We're going to buy a couple hundred more. Uh, we got not we got our eye on some land. We'd like to do some apartment deals there. And at the time, these guys owned or owned or or almost every apartment building in Santa Monica. They were so prolific; it was unbelievable. Wow. And they'd gotten their start by. Four of them were, were actually uh, scientists. They had PhDs in math, chemistry, and uh, nuclear physics. They were all working together at McDonnell Douglas or Northrop or one of those aerospace companies. And they were young guys with, with families back in the, uh, in the 60s. And they would play poker every Tuesday night. And they would play with coins and 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 uh, they had a numismatic book sitting there on the poker table and they'd look at each coin and if that coin was worth more than its face value they'd put it aside and they <laughs> built up a pot of twelve hundred dollars and bought a fourplex by LAX back in the in the 60s that's how they got started and after a while they got more and more and bought more and more buildings and more and more properties. Then they became a, a huge landlord in, in Santa Monica, and they parlayed that into buying the Forum, the Lakers, and the Kings hockey team. So that introduction from Blackie— all from coin arbitrage. Coin arbitrage all the way up. And, and, and in fact— 
That's crazy. To verify that story, it's in the, it, it, it used to be, I don't know if it is now or not, but it used to be in the Lakers program. That story was in the like the opening wow. page of the Lakers program. And, and uh, so anyway, that introduction was terrific, and we did a lot of business with them. But also Blackie introduced me to developers from all around the country that he knew. And, and, and obviously, being a casino host, these guys were gamblers. Mm-hmm. They, were the, they were the type of people who they were active looking for ways to develop. and look, They were deal, deal guys. Yeah. And uh, it really helped me. And then also there were people that worked in the casinos who were in the management side of it that I was introduced to also. And that got me into more of the higher level where I could go in and ask for the business when they were doing transactions or when they were doing loans and all mm-hmm. that. And at the time, the, the company, um, nearly that time, was um, title company was growing. And uh, the accounts in a title company are valuable to banks because of big checking accounts. It's not the title company's money. It's everybody else's money. It's all in there to be dispersed. Mm-hmm. So they had these huge deposits that were substantial. Any bank would 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 love to have those kind of deposits. And uh, one of the uh, quite obvious uh, uh, facts was Valley Bank was the predominant lender to the gaming industry, and they were the real uh, leaders in providing financing to the uh to the hotel properties, and uh, our accounts switched over there with the understanding, sort of on the side, that mm-hmm. they would help us, and they did. They were terrific. They were very helpful. The uh, uh, the Thomases and uh, uh, a guy named Dick Etter, who happens to be Christina Rausch's father, okay. was very helpful, and uh, uh, he was a terrific guy. He was also from Indiana. And he worked at Merchants Bank, so he and I knew a few people in common, and that helped a lot. But anyway, that that uh, that connection helped us to get into the uh, C-suite, basically, where a lot of decisions were made. And at that time, the hotels had a ter- had a had a horrend- excuse me horrendous time finding financing because Las Vegas had the old stigma mm-hmm. that these guys are scary. Valley Bank put deals together with other banks and kind of pioneered, as far as I knew, the participating bank uh, concept where a bunch of lenders would get mm-hmm. together and make a loan and Valley Bank would run it. So uh, we were able to do several deals. The first one we did that was, it seems like peanuts now, it was $15 million to build Circus Circus Manor right next door to Circus Circus which was the old El Rancho site, which burned down in the 1960s. And the guy who built it was Jay Sarno. He built Caesars, and mm-hmm. he built the uh, Circus Circus later. He'd sold Caesars, and then he built Circus Circus later, and he'd sold Circus Circus, but he controlled this land. They wanted more rooms, so he built more rooms for them and owned them, and then they, they used the rooms. And that was a $15 million loan from Valley Bank. And uh, so you said it's peanuts now, but at the time, what was that like? It was it, it was for our company. It was payroll. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously we didn't get fifteen million dollars. Right. We probably got ten thousand. But it was it was. I'm those, guessing those, at the time, by way of transactions, I was yeah. pre- pretty sizable. 
Yeah, in that time it was. I understand title to be a, a like a volume business. It You're is. not making huge margin when you see something sells for $15 million. You're mm-hmm. making you know, a premium, an insurance premium yeah. on the title, on the that's, deed that you're insuring. So you have to do a lot of transactions. Yes. But then something like, so what was a house selling for, like medium house at the time? Probably 60000 So a typical thing might be sixty, and here yeah. comes something that's $15 million. It's Yeah, probably, yeah. You guys yeah. are high-fiving. Yeah. Did you yeah. guys oh, high-five yeah. back then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, but, but it was so rushed, and, and Sarno, Mr. Sarno was a character beyond characters. He was a, he was a, just an, uh, you know, gregarious guy. So we went to the closing and he was putting golf balls on the floor in the conference room and the bankers and the lawyers were running around everywhere. And I thought, this is entertaining. <laughs> you don't go find this anywhere else, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, so, so, so we kind of got our feet wet and had some success. And then we had a, had a reference. We did this deal. Hey, you got to listen to us. And at the time, you know, I was like 28. Terry was like 30. So we were like these young guys out there mixing with these really heavy-duty decision makers trying to plow our way into doing their work. And we got the more, more we, we became more proficient at it and got more trust and met other people in the same casino industry and in banking and in all forms, all the law firms. And we began to take on uh, a more credible um, uh, persona of, of being able to handle these deals as a small local company because we were competing with national companies. We were underwritten by Safeco, which was a big national uh, insurance company that had a title insurance division. But we were competing against direct operations of Chicago Title, Lawyer's Title, uh, the uh, uh, Title Insurance and Trust, which is, uh, I forget what their name is now. But they had, you know, large staffs of people and they were large uh, organizations with direct operations. And we were, we were an agent. We were an agent with an, mm-hmm. we were an underwritten company. But we were able to sell ourselves as local boys. And it, it, it worked because... There's an insular thing about here, and and it, it's an interest, interesting thing about Las Vegas. And one old timer put it this way: He says everybody comes here for one deal. They don't know if they're going to stay or not, but everybody kind of comes here for one deal. And so we felt like we were dealing with the people that same kind of people that thought the same way. They all came here for one deal, even though they were running a hotel or they were the general counsel for a hotel or they were a bank. They were still, we were all kind of here as, as, as people who committed ourselves to Las Vegas, came here for one deal, but we stayed. Mm-hmm. So we got a reputation as being proficient in handling that and being local guys. And we were active. We were, you know, going to all the, uh, you know, the charity events and doing the right thing as a company. And Terry was a terrific manager and had very good staff people and always was, uh, a terrific manager. Um, never had really any uh, any any flaws as far as management. He 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 was very diligent and very uh, extremely honest with everybody he dealt with. And and I learned from him. And uh, to this day, I'm indebted to him because he was a terrific guy to work for and work with. And uh, so our business built up, and we sort of became a company that would be considered uh, what I would call 
competent to do any any deal. So we kept that, you know, uh, element alive by just being there. And anytime there was a casino transaction, we would call everybody that might be involved, could be involved. It was like throw a net over it, mm-hmm. surround it, call this guy, call that guy, call it. How do we get this deal? And sometimes it was about price, but more than more than uh, more than that, it was more about the people and what you'd done in the past. And you had no flaws or problems. You could underwrite these transactions, which was not simple. You know, there were a lot of things that uh, these casino companies did in their shop that was different than conventional. You know, they had you know different requirements for financing, and it was hard for them to borrow money. And that all changed uh, when the Mirage came about because that was the famous Drexel Burnham junk bond deal. And Mm -hmm. that opened up a whole new door when Steve Wynn built that property. And by that time, the companies had, some of them had become public and they were able to borrow money and go to Wall Street and all that stuff. And but in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, they were, they were, they were uh, strained, but they still grew because when you, when it comes down to it, it's just like any other business. You take money from your customers, you pay your bills, you support your employees, and you make a profit. The fact that it's gambling, for some reason, people think, hey, there's something, something wrong there. That's it, sort of uh, kind of business that there's there's more going on than we know and obviously had all the bad publicity about the skimming and you know it was all true but Mm. again the industry grew outgrew that really outgrew it because the as you see now where we are today you see how much mature the industry's gotten and how sophisticated it's gotten and that was all because they had the nevada had the had the uh foresight to regulate it in a way that made it grow like it should have grown but Mm -hmm. they had to sort of get rid of that stigma and they did it and he did it effectively so uh and in that time the town was growing to a point where um there was land availability but there was also difficulty with financing you couldn't just go to you know random banks you had to have tenants in place you had to have you know there there was there was a lot of difficulty in the commercial developers and and there's some of the most creative guys had come here and bought land and were looking to do shopping centers and do uh, uh, all sorts of commercial development uh, to support the the residential that was really being uh, driven by a bunch of local home builders there were very few if any I think U.S. Home was the first public home builder to come in here in the early 80s, late 70s. And then um, they all came in towards the end of the 80s and and the 90s. They all came in here and had relative success. Once somebody comes and proves the market, then then others follow. Right. Kind of like professional sports now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So which is, yeah, a good, good, good analogy. But the, uh, um, the, the those times were, were were really enjoyable because it was it was sort of like if everybody knew everybody in a certain way you knew mm-hmm. of them if they there were a lot of uh, you know it was not a lot of people you know bitterness and and you know competitive jealousy and things like that there was obviously 
you know, competition and, 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 and uh, people basically uh, looking out for their own interests. But there was so much to go around that nobody was really starving. Mm-hmm. And everybody had, there was plenty of business for everybody is what I'm saying. And you could work as hard as you want and, and get your share and more. So, um, but, you know, I'll just, uh, I got into the industry and joined NAOP pretty mm-hmm. quickly, the Developers Association. Right. And the, the f- commercial developers historically were some families, the Thomas yeah. and Mack family, yeah. the Greenspun family, yeah. the Moncarsh family. Yeah. And they would talk about as the town was maturing, and I forgot what company it was. Is a uh, you know, not maybe not publicly traded, but a, a big uh, institutional type mm-hmm. company wanted an office here. I think it was an office, and they all, of course, had you know competing interests, competing mm-hmm. sites. Each one yeah. of them wanted to be the developer, but they they, I don't know if it was uh, spoken or not, but the sort of agreement was they just need to land here. Mm-hmm. Whoever gets it, right. fine, but we're all going to benefit because yeah. it'll. That's right, and it seems uh, like that's the, the sentiment you're you're talking about. Yeah, but you know, early on, it was you got anybody you could get, and if you had a better site, you 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 were you were going to get better tenants and have a better project. And and you know, some of the guys that I met over that time and and really learned to admire when I was a young guy, twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine years old, and I'd sit in the office with these guys, and and they were they were taking risks. They were just they were here in, in this, you know, desert town with a piece of land that they had to make a payment on. They had a lot of their own money in these deals to start out with before they could even think about approaching a bank. And you know, they were putting on a brave face, and it was, you know, hmm. a credit to those guys, those pioneer guys that basically got the town all the support it needed to build the rest of the infrastructure here. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and I have to say this, too, government here was supportive. It was. It, it was, uh, I have to say, you know, there, there's exceptions, of course, but government kind of pulled things together and were not um, what I would call, you know, there were anti-growth elements. But overall, the town grew because government was uh, supportive and, and, and they did their job, don't get me wrong. But they were also this this place. For example, you would talk to L.A. developers or developers in uh, other states, mainly L.A. It took them a year to get something even close to the approval process mm-hmm. with all the you know the hearings and the applications and the submittals and everything. And here you could have a zoning uh, uh, approval in six to eight weeks. And you know, so so time is money, and the uh, support. Government here was was important in those days, and uh, you know now in those when you had five hundred thousand people, it's one thing. Now we've got over two million, so there's a lot more, you know, um, what I would call hurdles mm-hmm. and elements of of requirements that uh, have to be met. But uh, that was in this is now. So, uh, but uh, back to the uh, those those times, and and during my tenure with Nevada Title, I met this guy. Uh, named uh, Mike Saltman. I was out hustling business, and uh, there was this 30 acres on the corner of Trop and Eastern, vacant. There was buildings around it, and a few residential buildings, and a couple old... 30 acres at Trop, yeah, yeah, Tropicana. North, I'm trying to put myself there. Northwest corner. Northwest corner. Of Tropicana and Eastern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Northwest corner. Vacant site. 
Uh-huh. So I okay. looked in the zoning, looked in the zoning, uh, uh, county zoning records. There was an application pending for a, you know, I forget, 150,000 square foot shopping center or and, and with pads and the whole deal. And uh, so um, I, you know, decided to go over to the site. There was a trailer there. So I walked in. There was some guy sitting there, and I said, uh, "Hey, uh, uh, um, I'm here. I'm with Nevada Title. I'd like to see who's going to be making the decision on title insurance. Who's your lender? This and that." He goes, "Well, you got to talk to Mike Saltman." I said, "I said he's he's running the project," and I said, "Okay, can you give me his number?" And the guy wrote his number down. Well, you know, I can't remember if he called me back or didn't call me back, but uh, I I went back there and 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 asked the guy for what's his office address. And so I finally, I think we finally connected. So I went by his office. He was on desert Inn, and, uh, just between, uh, Maryland Parkway and Eastern in one of those buildings on the North side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I walked in there and, and, uh, he took me in his office and introduced himself and he had long hair and like, uh, these, Seriously? Uh, yeah, he, he looked like, uh, <laughs> he looked like, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, um, the 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 U two guy, uh, what's Bono. Uh, Bono. He had these blue tinted sunglasses <laughs> on, and he had this this sort of long mop with curled up at the bottom, and he had like a uh, like a real like a pop art shirt on. I gotta see remember, a picture. Remember of this. Nick Nick shirts? No. Well, they were like they were like these uh, like pop art looking shirts. So I go in there. I say, this is this guy, and he goes, and he was all business. Well, I don't. We don't use that. We you, we use one company here. We use X Y Z title. I know those guys. What what can you do for me? I said, Well, I'm here to tell you. I can probably help you. We can introduce you to some lenders that we know that we're doing business with. Uh, if you're looking at other other land deals, we can help you with maybe finding out if they're available. And so I kind of gave him the the pitch where we can we're trying to be more service oriented and help you build your project. Then we just want to. Uh, try to get a deal and see you later. And he goes, well, he says, we're, we're working on a lot of things. He says, um, he says, I'll, 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 I'll take consideration. I get up to leave. He goes, there's one thing you can do for me. And I said, what's that? He goes, I just thought of something. I like to see the CCNRs for, it was the, it was the, uh, um, Maryland Parkway and, uh, Flamingo, where the Cafe Michelle and all that stuff was. Mm-hmm. It was a project that uh, the Molaski group built years ago. And evidently... Where was Cafe? I've heard of Cafe Michelle. Back- that was Cafe like the, Michelle the was at the north... Uh, w- w- it was at the northeast corner. Northeast corner. Yeah. And there was, I think, a yeah. Smith's... There was a you know, block up from UNLV. And uh, that okay. was... Uh, so he uh, wants to see the CCNRs Well, he wanted property? to see... Yeah, he wanted to see the pads and how the you know, the, 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 uh, the governing documents of that area mm-hmm. was, and, you know, some of those were, you know, 20, 30 pages. And, you know, at the time you had to go get them all and, uh, print them all. And, uh, so this was like a three thirty on a Friday afternoon. And, uh, he kind of gave me that kind of, yeah, you can see what you can do for me. I said, okay. So I got my arm and says, you know what? I'm going back to the office. I'm going to prove to this guy that I'm, actually going to do something he doesn't expect. Challenge so I went accepted. back there, and I, I, I uh, went to one of the girls who was, you know, working, and I said, can we get these CCNRs out mm-hmm. printed 
in, a, in about you know half hour, 45 minutes. I said, can you stick around and do that and help me? We can work this out. And she goes, yeah, 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 we'll do it. So she was working in a title plan. So we took us about, we had to put them all together and make, put them all in order and make sure they were all legible and all that stuff. I got back in my car and went over there about, you know, 4.30. And I walked in the front door with this stack of papers and, and, and said, Mr. Saltman, uh, here's the CCNRs. He went, thank you. He says, I'm going to do business with you. He goes, that was an extraordinary favor you did me. I really appreciate it. He and I have been lifelong friends. That was uh, 40. Uh, did he 42? think you were actually going to, to deliver? He just oh, thought, he maybe thought I'd show up like next a... week. And just, you know, it was almost casual. Yeah. Hey, see if you can get those for me. There was no deadline, but I just decided I'm going to turn around, go to my office. I'm going to yeah. drive back here and drop these on this guy's desk. Just just felt like doing it because I liked him, and I thought, this is the kind of guy I'd like to get to know a little bit because he seems like he's on the ball, and we all know that was the case. And so uh, he started saying, well, you need to come to this meeting. Our attorneys are having a meeting. And, you know, I wasn't a technical title guy, but he started to include me and introduce me to his lenders and introduce me to some of his partners. So we got to be really, uh, really friendly, and uh, he basically said, you know, um, I need a guy to kind of work with me on some things that I don't have time to do. And he said, uh, how would you like to be a consultant? Well, I couldn't spell consultant. I didn't know what consultant <laughs> did. Uh, I said, well, you know, I have, a, I have a job. And I said, I have to ask my boss uh, if I can do some work for you on a part-time basis. And so those two guys met by this time. And uh, – I, I went to Terry and I said, Mike Saltman wants me to, you know, help him out and do some work for him. And I said, you know, I don't want to hide from you. I want to make it totally transparent. He goes, fine with me. He said, just so we don't have any conflicts or anything like that. And those two guys got to know each other. Mm -hmm. So it was like pretty easy to do. And then my they had trust with each other. Yeah, so they, they, they were they trusted each other. And I was doing uh Mike a favor and helping him out, and he was a good customer, and he was referring us other people because he was pretty well known in town at that time, and and uh, he was a, just a dynamo, just a dynamo. I mean, he had uh, gone, he had had an interesting life career, uh, and you're going to get into that with him one of these days. But, I, yeah, uh, he texted him. So yeah, do you know the his background? Here's how I met Mike Saltman. I. Mm -hmm. Born and raised here, went to UNLV, graduated, mm -hmm. got my real estate license yeah. in the early 2000s because everybody else was too. Yeah. Our family business was always construction. Yeah. So really, I just got my license in case we bought or sold anything. Yeah, yeah, I could yeah, take yeah, a yeah. commission. Sure, sure. But then after a few years, it was, you know, if I really, if, if this was going to be a career, I have to treat it like a career. Mm -hmm. And I got, um, you know, more serious about it, partnered up with a childhood friend of mine, Jared. Mm -hmm. And then I got, I started going to this, Somebody told me you got to go to this group to network. It's called CMG, Commercial Marketing Group. Yeah. And they met at the country club. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I'd go there. And then a friend of ours, colleague, said, you should uh, get on the board for CMG. Mm -hmm. Sure. Did that. And then similar thing. I'm a young guy. Now, because I was in a, a high school youth group that ran meetings with Robert's Rules of Order. Right. I knew Robert's rules of order. I knew that every meeting has to have an agenda and there's sure. a, a sort of process you follow. Mm -hmm. And I started, you know, it transferred this, mm -hmm. 
thing I learned is in the high school youth group, mm -hmm. transfer to real life, mm -hmm. and I'm participating in these meetings. I start running the meetings, and you can imagine everyone around the table was much older than I was. Sure. But they appreciated this young guy had a mm -hmm. sense to him, sense of order, yeah. and everyone likes being in an organized meeting. Yes. That's something I learned. So I became president of CMG pretty quickly, and I'm I'm super young here, maybe mm -hmm. mid-20s still. Mm -hmm. CMG would do this uh, big event. I forgot what they called it at the time. It was like the Visionary Award. I mm -hmm. think that's what it was called. And at the time, Mike Saltman was, he had a plan for Maryland Parkway right around the yeah. university called Midtown. Yes. And so CMG wanted to honor him as the visionary. Mm -hmm. And he didn't feel right about it because the vision didn't come to fruition yet. Yeah. So, but it was still, you know, a good idea, a good thought. He mm -hmm. asked us to instead consider, um, it was really the Mac family. Who was Jerry's wife? Jerry, Jerry Mac's wife. Um, I forgot Joyce. Name. Joyce. Yeah. So we actually honored Joyce. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I met Mike for the first mm -hmm. time. Through, through that through that deal thing yeah. he was appreciative because it brought um some media and exposure to his mm -hmm. this midtown right concept and then from there like over the years uh, mike saltman's jewish i'm jewish mm -hmm. jewish community mm -hmm. i got to know his son when he lived here david, for, for sure. a bit david mm -hmm. so that's how i know mike and mm -hmm. When I asked you to come on here, mm -hmm. I got a text from Mike oh, yeah. immediately, immediately, yeah. immediately vouching yeah, yeah, for yeah, your character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that, was, yeah, well, yeah. I thought yeah. that was funny. Yeah. But also uh, sharing a little bit of your history yeah. together. Yeah. Well, and so I said to Mike, you're you're going to come on too. Yeah. He's yeah. Got some, oh, yeah. Some yeah. Great he, stories. Well, I was just checking with him, say, hey, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up here. You got you're anything gonna, I should know? Yeah, nothing. Did you Go did you run it. by the blue glasses that you're in the and the mop hair? He already knows you that's him? he already knows that's coming. <laughs> he knows that's coming. Very but, nice. Uh, but uh, so that project was Renaissance that you talked about, right? Is that what it became? Renaissance was the shopping center, the which shopping I center. had very little involvement in. But he sort of turned me loose and said, "Hey, if you find something, let me know. We'll look at it." Well, at that time, I was scouring around, looking at the public record, looking for land, looking for owners that own land, and looking to see what transactions. Back were on the on. microfiche. Back on microfiche, uh, things were microfiche was getting a little clearer over this yeah. time. The technology <laughs> was getting a little better, but yeah, I could uh, I could get uh, so I, uh, I I found this site out on uh, out on Tropicana, Tropicana and Lindell, which is just uh, west of uh, mm -hmm. Decatur. At the time, there were like sand dunes out there. There were cliffs sticking out on both south corners there at Trop and Decatur, and there was nothing out there, nothing. Uh, no power lines, no it's nothing. It's hard to think it now. It's hard it's to, hard to think now. it now, yeah. And, and this was, this was uh, right around the same time Spanish Trail was being developed. Mm -hmm. So you had like a, what, four or five-mile stretch from the strip out the Spanish Trail. So... I found out this this, uh, this this guy owned the property. He was a Beverly Hills guy, and his brother was a lawyer, and they owned this property together. His brother had done a few developments here, small residential rental developments. They were like one-story buildings with garages and gates, and he'd done a few of those around here. And uh, so I got him on the phone, and I, I, I said, uh, um, his name was Al Abrams. 
and I said, Mr. Abrams, uh, mm-hmm. are you interested in uh, in selling that your property, or what's your plan for that property? Because I think he, I, I caught it on a like a zoning app for something. I don't know what it was. It wasn't full blown project, but something there was something he was doing that was required some type of uh, county action. So we talked, and uh, he said, I'm not really a seller. I'd like to build on the property. And he says, I don't know if I want to do it or not. Uh, I said, well, what, what, what do you got in mind? He goes, well, you know any builders there that might want? I said, yeah, I, I, I know somebody. And Mike Saltman had built some apartments already out in Henderson called, I forget the name of them, Village Apartments or something. And so he had a little bit of a background. And, and uh, I said, um, so can you, when are you going to be in Las Vegas? And uh, so he came up, and we went and met and got to know each other and talking. And Mike's a very outgoing and gregarious guy. And He's got a lot Abr- of energy. A- Abrams was, was also a nice, very nice guy, very smart guy. And so the conversation got down to, you know, let's see what we can do to, to, to – Put some uh, some apartments on here, and uh, uh, Abram said, "Well, you guys put a deal together and show me how it's going to work. Where I contribute the land, I get X. You guys go out, borrow the money, and we work this together." And so all of a sudden, this thing started because Mike's so energetic and started to take shape. So, and um, I had a friend who was uh, a Texas developer who had um, another developer I met through Blackie Dardine, who was in the process of shutting down his company, was going through a divorce and was moving on to do other things. He was a major national developer, was building around the country, but not here. He had several employees of his organization that he didn't really want to let go, but he wanted to refer them. So I couldn't do it myself, so... We basically made a deal with Al Abrams to build 496 units. We had 55 acres. So we started out on the first, I think, the first 30, and we built 496 units there. And we hired an architect from Dallas named Cliff Wong, who was a terrific architect, had a lot of uh, great design, and that project still looks good today. And uh, so we basically went down the road, got financing from a bank in Seattle and and I was a project manager, and I put a, put together a construction crew, a father-son crew, and uh, we basically built it in-house in, in Vista and, and got it built. And uh, a company from San Diego came along called ConAm and offered to buy it. And ConAm was a very uh, well-respected national property management company that did only apartments. I think at the time they had maybe 20,000, 30,000 units from Florida to San Diego, various cities. And it was headed up by a guy named Dan Epstein, who was a very high-profile development guy in, in, in Southern California and uh, ran this, this very uh, high-quality company. And so they bought the project from us. And uh, then we built another 240 units behind for a total of 840 units. So we built another towards on the other side of Reno Avenue, where the project was actually two phases, they bought that too. So we got to be friendly with those guys. And 
there we found out their financing or their partnership was with the bishop estate in Hawaii, which may not mean anything to a lot of people, but if you're from Hawaii, I think mm-hmm. it does mean something because you, know, you always hear the the, uh, uh, the 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 Hawaiian real estates owned by a mysterious owner, and everybody pays rent because they can't own fee title, and that was the way it was years ago. Well, the bishop estate was receiving all those payments. Mm. And they had a board of directors of people from the Supreme Court, retired Supreme Court judges to political officials that ran this fund, this tremendous real estate fund. And obviously, they couldn't invest all their money back in Hawaii. They had a school there called Kamehameha School, which received the benefits of their, of their uh, investments. So they invested heavily in Las Vegas. And at one time, back in those mid-'80s, they were the largest landlord in Nevada. They owned about 12,000 apartments here. Wow. Con Am was the face. Con Am ran the projects, and Bishop was, was the underlying owner. So we got to know those guys, and uh, um, they bought the project. They were pleased with how it worked out. We all got along well. Uh, Dan and Mike became friendly, and um, this all kind of came together. And the project was one of the things I left out when we were starting to lease the project. We had these, you know, big 496 units sitting there in the middle of nowhere. There was a guy in the advertising business here in those days named Joe Merica. And uh, he was a larger-than-life character, very entertaining guy, very creative guy. And uh, he had done all Mike's uh, PR, basically, mm-hmm. in advertising for Renaissance Center. Renaissance Center won all these architectural awards, was ahead of its time, you know, and, and uh, Joe saw to it that, that uh, it got exposure. So so Joe met me out there one day, and we were building buildings, and we're probably maybe six months from opening. And uh, I said, what do you think? He goes, there's nothing out here. <laughs> and I said, well, what can you come up with? <laughs> so when we opened, our theme was live where no man has lived before. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a picture of a guy like walking through the desert. That was our ad. So we were surrounded on all sides by desert, out nothing out there. And, and that worked? It worked. The project was well done. The floor plans were great. And uh, another little tidbit, we were decided to decorate the models. And uh, there was a, a big contingent of people from locally here every morning went to the sporting house which is now Sapphire's Strip Club. That was but, a, back then it was like an athletic club, right? Back then it was, it was like a af- lifetime of its day. It was a lifetime, but it was all Vegas. Right. Anybody, anybody went there in the mornings at 5 a.m., mm-hmm. you could do more business there before 7 a.m. than you could all day because you saw developers, bankers, politicians, anybody and ever went to the sporting house in the morning. So it was like a cross-section of the whole community of development people and real estate people and uh, lawyers. It was just an interesting place. And it was run by Freddie Glussman, who owns Mm -hmm. Piero's. And uh, and, uh, it was owned by Alan Glick, the former owner of the Stardust and the Hacienda, who was a well-known character. But uh, uh, the place was just uh, a a, a tremendous meeting place. And and, uh, it, it, it ended up being one of those things where um, we had to have, um, um, you know, activity created. And one of the guys that was 
going to this boarding house was was Roger Thomas, Peter's brother. Peter would go to, he was president of Valley Bank at that time. And Roger, as everyone knows, is world famous. He was Steve Wynn's design guy. He ran Wynn Design Development. At that time, he was working at the Golden Nugget and doing all the Golden Nugget, which was by far the most elegant hotel, even though it was downtown. Mm-hmm. So Roger, uh, I approached him. I said, hey, can you, do you ever do apartment models? He looked at me like, huh? He goes, no. He says, I, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. Uh, he said, let me think about it. Because I thought, well, you know, this little deal gives a couple ideas. So he calls me up and he says, uh, I got an idea. There's a girl in my shop who I really uh, 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 would like to see uh, do this. She's going through a divorce, and uh, she needs some little bit of extra money. And maybe you can have her on kind of an hourly basis do this. We had models that no one had ever seen. They were absolutely beautiful. They were perfectly, <laughs> perfectly filled out. I mean, she was a pro. Nobody that works under him could mm-hmm. last unless you were very professional and really knew what you were doing. And she did our models, and they were so just, he's helping her out. Yeah, well, he just referred me to her because I, I just just casually asked yeah. him one day. I said, "Hey, Roger, you know we need somebody to do our models." And a lot of the people doing them in those days, they were working for home builders and this and that. And I said, well, "You know, we got to get. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We got to get some, some, uh, you know, some notice. Uh, we got to really have some special right. things for some, people to something see. Something for people to talk about. And you know, we had a budget like everybody else, but the but the the stuff she picked out and her ability to match colors." <laughs> We had people coming out there just to see the models, which sometimes isn't a good idea. They're better off if they sign leases. But at least uh, that was a real interesting kind of way to to have the project be a standout, which is what it ended up being, and uh, as well as live where no man has lived before. So, <laughs> but the project did real well. Con Am bought it, and uh, but that leads me to the next cycle, which was um, Con Am mentioned that. Bishop didn't want to buy suits off the rack. They owned a lot of existing projects. And they said, uh, or through a conversation or through some meeting, let's build one from the ground up. You got those guys in Vegas, uh, meaning the Vista mm-hmm. Group, Saltman's company, and you guys are managing you know, thousands of units there. Let's find a, 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 a site and, and build a, a project from the ground up, and we'll finance it, or we'll basically be the equity. And so we went on a search, and uh, at the time, Hughes Center was in its infancy. The Wells Fargo Tower was there, and maybe maybe one of those other buildings to the north was there. And uh, so uh, we went over and met with, uh, I believe at the time it was John Goolsby or uh, uh, one of the guys, I think it was John or... or Anyway, we ended up dealing with a, a guy in the real estate department. They had 16 acres that they owned next to the substation there at Flamingo and Koval on okay. the northeast corner of Flamingo and Koval. You know, the big substation where the, the big power easement that's 300 foot wide comes all the way from the lake all the way down Flamingo. And, you know, it's it's all the way to the strip, basically. And mm-hmm. you have that substation sitting on the corner. So you would know about this power easement. Yeah. Most people won't. Yeah, you're a title guy. Yeah, I, I knew. Well, I knew all about it. It's right. so obvious. It, you know, it's overhead. What are you going to do? You know, isn't like you're going to hit it in, when you're digging in the ground. It's mm-hmm. right there. And 
it was overhead and uh so but it was right two blocks from the strip it was just part of this hughes center which at the time there was really nothing on the front of the hughes center there was no lowry's there was no restaurants that was all just vacant and uh so we ended up making an offer they ended up saying okay we want to see what you're going to build here so we uh um picked an architect i didn't uh mike and dan epstein brought this architect in named carl mclaren with mclaren vasquez they were an advanced firm from southern california that were doing state-of-the-art multifamily, kind of state-of-the-art everything they were a very talented uh group and carl was a, a major uh, you know, usc department architect that had been educated there with John Jurdy, the guy that did uh, uh, Fremont Street. And, you know, they were very talented guys that had done a lot of L.A. projects. They did the Water Garden in Santa Monica and just a terrific portfolio. And so we started talking to them about doing this project. So they came up with ideas and renderings and certain things. And, and, and uh, we had the land in escrow by that time. And so we finally came up with a 678-unit project, 530-something unit buildings on that project with a major uh, clubhouse pool, this typical design. And they were, uh, they were four stories over a parking garage, a one-level parking garage. And that to the south of the project, right on Flamingo, was a substation. So we get the project kind of laid out and there's this site plan existing so okay what do we do now so well let's go down to the county and see what uh what we can do to get started with the approvals well the zoning book at the time they had a big binder and everybody had a copy of it and you'd flip through there and tell you what classification you were going to apply for so go down the list, and, and I, I look, it said multifamily, or it said apartments at that time. Multifamily got this cleaned up word because mm-hmm. apartments was felt like, nah. So highest density was 24 per acre. Well, this was 42. So zoning didn't even allow. So H1 was hotel zoning, meaning the county had to give you a waiver. You could build an apartment complex at 42 units per the acre. And luckily, just as fate would have it, the county had hired two ladies from Dallas, Texas, where it was sort of the one of the most uh, uh, advanced apartment markets in the country. Dallas and Houston at that time were building terrific multifamily, award-winning projects, high-density stuff. And they came from that market and went to work in the planning department at Clark County. One of them was Lucy Stewart. The other one was Lisa Coder. Lucy's still around. She does a lot of uh, land use consulting. And so anyway, we came in. They were sitting there at a table in the conference room of the planning department, showed them a site plan, showed them a profile. But I said, we can do this. It was a breath of fresh air because here we, here we were. And this is a, a great project, but didn't conform mm-hmm. so how are you going to approve you got to have adequate parking you got to have circulation you got to have all these things that fit into that zoning and they looked at the uh, the project and they said ah, we, we can work this out so we ended up going forward with it and uh the other major thing we uh 
um, we, we did that was uh, unique was we hired Lifescapes, which had just finished the Mirage. And the Mirage was, was the absolute, um, you know, preeminent project ever done on the Strip. And one of the reasons for that was the absolutely fabulous landscaping that mm-hmm. Steve Wynn had, had put together, designed by a guy named Don Brinkerhoff, who was the architect, uh, landscape architect for his company, Lifescapes. So we hired them thinking they can landscape this, you know, erector set sitting there on our south boundary, and this thing's got to look good anyway. So we had a great team. We had Lifescapes. We had McLaren Vasquez. And so uh, uh, we put a trailer down there where Lowry's is now. And I sat in that trailer for two and a half years, and uh, we we built the project. And um, the economics of it were frightening because nobody had ever built anything like that here. No one had ever built an apartment complex like that here. We had a few scares in 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 the process. We had really very uh, hard soil there because it was next to the Flamingo Wash. And we had highly, um, uh, you know, very hard dig soils. And our parking garages, all five of them, were designed to be subterranean, meaning they're down in the ground. They are below ground, and you have to go down a ramp to get Mm. to them. To go down that far in that hard soil was millions of dollars in excavation and 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 uh, trenching and uh you know you couldn't blast there uh it was too highly populated around and it was so expensive to dig so we raised them up four feet and they became semi-subterranean parking and didn't have to be ventilated because the they, they, we just put berms up, and the mm-hmm. ventilation was natural. We put, you know, evident screens there so that uh, there was light and air coming in. So we had to move up the elevation four feet, and uh, the the project took, uh, you know, a lot of effort to build. It was very tight, and uh, the uh, uh, the rents when we were looking at the fundamental economics of the project. Um, Steve Malaski had a company called Pacific Properties, and they were building apartments in town, and they were sort of their calling card with blue awnings. And he did very nice work, very nice projects, blue awnings, and they were just uniform, very nice. He was getting about 70 cents a square foot for rent. And our cost, we looked at, you know, basically the, the debt service, cost of the project, all the things that went into the final number, and we had to get 92 cents to break even, Mm -hmm. which 22 cents higher than anybody else, which translates to several hundred dollars more per apartment per month, which is a pretty good stretch. But we felt like we've got a great site. we got a great design. We're going to get the you know, the term renter by choice is who we're going to get. We're going to get gaming executives. We're going to get... So turned out when we finished it, we out of the gate got a dollar six. So we kind of, you know, uh, you know, our expectations were met. And uh, during What's that the, project called? Called the Meridian. The Meridian. Meridian. Meridian at Hughes Center. And one of the, during the during the time, this is this was the the, uh, uh, the most interesting element of this project's um, history was 
we had an engineering firm called G.C. Wallace, very mm-hmm. prominent firm here, and uh, they were our civil engineers. And as we were laying out buildings, getting our approvals, getting our bids in, starting to you know, do everything it took to get the project out of the ground, uh, we met with the civil often. We were getting all our studies approved, and, and uh, uh, a question came up, uh, and they said, do you want to put a condo map on this, on this property? And I was in the meeting, and I said, well, that's not for me to determine. I'm a peon in this case, and I need to go to the principals and, and ask them. And I said, can you give me a, a quote for what it would cost, civil engineering-wise, to do a condo map that we could record, which would create the airspace, legal airspace, to make those individual units? And you could just do boilerplate CC&Rs. It mm-hmm. didn't matter if you were going to rent them. You didn't really need to you know, record the CC&Rs. So it came back with $46,000 to do a condo map. So I transmitted that information to uh, uh, the, the, the principals who were Bishop and, and, and uh, Conam and, and Vista to the, to the ownership. And you guys want to do a condo map here? Came back unanimous. Yeah, why not? $46,000, you never know. That was before all mm-hmm. the controversy with construction defects and, and uh, all the flaws and condominiums and things. Well, after owning the project from 90, and when it was finished in about 92, up until 2000, I believe it was 2006, so that's what, 14 years? The project never lost money, but it never made money. It paid Bishop their return on capital, mm-hmm. but the rest of us, we had about, I think we had 10 each. Conam had 10, Vista had 10% of the deal. And uh, Bishop had all their money in. They were the capital. It cost them like, I think it was $67 million, $63 million all in to build it. So they were getting a 10% cumulative preferred return on their capital. The project was always close, you know, and we would get K-1s, show remaining money, you know. <laughs> and so you're sitting there, you know, you know that's the case. You're not going to get distributions on something like that when somebody else puts up all the money. So anyway... Here we come into the feeding frenzy of early 2000s, and all of a sudden, the property is worth a lot more than it was as an apartment complex. And we start getting offers. And 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 turns out a company called American Invesco, or, or I can't remember the exact term, but they made this incredible offer to come up with, I think it was several million dollars, non-refundable, in like seven days, buy the project for $135 million. More than twice what we basically had in it to start, and it's unbelievable. Why? Because it had a condo map. They knew <laughs> they could sell those condos. Every subprime lender in, in the universe would make loans on them, mm-hmm. and they were selling those units for $500 a foot. It cost us about $100 a foot to build them. Unbelievable deal. And that's the kind of deal where you get two commas at the end of the mm-hmm. day. You know, you come out of there with a, a nice payout for luck, but holding on and basically building a quality project, it paid off. But that one decision turned out to be worth, yep. you know, $60 million. If it had not a condo, and nobody wants to go back and do one. You can, but 
off the it's show. It's also 14 years is a different time and place. And uh, I don't know if Lucy was still there or Lisa yeah. was still there. There's probably different people, mm-hmm. like you said, all these new conditions around yeah. or considerations around a construction defect that didn't exist yeah. back then. Mm-hmm. It probably would have cost a heck of a lot more than $40 million or whatever. Or 40, probably, probably would have. Yeah, yeah. So interesting little takeaway that sometimes paying a little bit of money to have an asset, so to speak Mm -hmm. can pay off dividends later. Well, it was, it was having um, some vision uh, with guys that really understood, you know, and and it was like, there was no real desire to sell because it was always going to be worth more. It was just that that, that drove a quick absolute sale for a lot of money without a bunch of back and forth and contingencies. These guys, this, it was just cash on the barrel head. They had to have it. It was a frenzy then. It was just, uh, and, and, you know, it's, we could have sat there and managed it forever, but, uh, the so store, that, that reminds me. So, um, shows called takeaways and it's about my takeaways yeah. from people that I've, uh, interacted with and have had an influence on me. So I remember Mike Saltman saying once, um, he got some crazy offer and I don't know if it was for that property or if it was for, I think he, didn't he also own the retail center? Was it Renaissance three? That's over yeah, on, yeah, uh, Ren- that Renaissance three on Flamingo? Fa- no, that's Flamingo. Flamingo, Flamingo Pecos, Pecos. at Ren three. Yeah. So he got some crazy offer for that mm-hmm. and he didn't want to, there's like, he owned a bunch of property. He had mm-hmm. no intentions of selling. I remember him saying, mm-hmm. and he got some crazy offer. He's like, okay, well we should mm-hmm. probably take this. And it was either he learned the lesson or maybe his attorney at the time said to him, it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. So you're a guy that doesn't sell your properties. You're about to sell this one. It's going to be a slippery slope. And he ended up selling pretty much everything else, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he still has or doesn't have, but that was a takeaway. So I want mm-hmm. to put a pause in your chronological timeline here for a second because I ask everybody, and I want to make sure to ask you also, mm-hmm. what has been one takeaway in your life that's defined or shaped you the most? I didn't know this was coming. Uh, I think moving to Las Vegas, just making a decision to move here and become, uh, take it as it comes and uh, do what I needed to do to be successful and, uh, you know, meet new people and explore new opportunities. And I think that's the best way I could answer that. Uh, I was just driven to succeed and learn and be uh, a, uh, an asset to my employer and also improve myself uh, as a person, as a businessman, and as a, you know, uh, now, to, now today a husband and a father. And I think I met people here that were so influential on my life as a young man that it came up perfectly for me it uh, it was uh, and and some of it's my own judgment i can't mm-hmm. say that it was all you know uh just luck i just gravitated to the right kind of people i felt like i i had a, a connection with people that were similar in their values to me they were honest they were trustworthy they were hardworking, and they didn't uh do anything behind your back i just saw the way they treated other people and that's the way i wanted to be uh, associated with people that were of that uh, that same mentality, and I think that's the biggest thing that. Uh, now they, you were attracted to them, but they yeah. were also attracted to you because I'm, I'm assuming I'd like to get your reaction on this. 
you know, you saw that in them and you wanted to work with them, but yeah. then they had to have also seen it in you in a way where they see their values reflected back right. in you. Right. Um, and I imagine there were probably some people back then that maybe weren't honest or you saw well, how they treated was, others behind yeah, their back. It's always that, that you're not saying their names here today. No, no. It's obviously anybody that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's positives and negatives, but the people that I, that I associated with the closest and were the closest to were, it's maybe my judgment was just absolutely perfect, which is hard to believe. But I have always associated myself with very, very respectable, honorable, smart, uh, creative, uh, everything you want in a, in a friend. And they became friends. They were mentors and friends. And uh, now that I'm you know, an old guy, I look back and go, oh, I've been lucky. I met the right people. And uh, you know, we basically uh, did well together. But there's one antidote or takeaway mm -hmm. that we haven't discussed yet that I need to tell you about the Meridian. You want me to go ahead with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So there was uh, the project. We were in the grading stage, and we had uh, the land graded, and uh, we were, you know, obviously could drive by and see we were going to build something there. And I got a call from uh, the uh, president of the Flamingo Hotel, which was right over on the Strip, closest to the property. He had to walk a couple blocks, and his name was Horst Azura. And he was one of, uh, uh, Henry Lewin was the Hilton president, and they worked for Baron Hilton. And, you know, Horst Azura was a very prominent guy in Las Vegas, ran the Flamingo uh, for years. So he called the office one day, asked for, who's the guy out there I need to talk to? The office tells me, this man, Dejura, wants to talk to you. So I called him up. You, know, you go through like three secretaries and, and uh, in those days. And he got on the phone, and I said, sir, I said, what can I do for you? He goes, um, I noticed you got that land over there graded, uh, and uh, can you uh, – We'd like to park on there on New Year's Eve, uh, have our employees park over there. Can we put some cars over there? And, and I said, well, let me ask the owners, see if, you know, we're probably going to need insurance policy, obviously, and you'll have to, you know, indemnify us, whatever the case is. He goes, oh, yeah, that's no problem. He says, I just want to know. So I, I, said, I said, yeah, absolutely. So uh, put a deal together, and a bunch of people parked there. They had 24-hour security. It, was, it worked out real well. And so... I think I went back over there, and he and I went to lunch and chatted, and then I didn't hear from him anymore, and he knew what we were building there and, and all this. So then I get a call out of the blue about the time we're opening the project, all the way past the grading stage to where we got buildings up over there. And he said, uh, I, I want to introduce you to somebody. Come over here about 1130 or whatever. So I go over there, and there's a guy sitting in front of his desk, and uh, he introduces me to the guy. The guy's got on a beautiful suit. He says, this is Mr. So-and-so. He's the uh, impresario of the Rockettes in uh, you know, Radio City Music Hall. They're coming here to do a residency, and they wanna, we want to put them up in uh, a place where they're not going to be bothered. They have place to, you know, uh, a amenitized place. They didn't want them in a hotel. They mm -hmm. wanted them in a nice apartment. And he says, I told them about your place. 
and uh, they had makeup people, and I don't know how many of them there were, but they were going around looking for spots. So it's like the whole show. The so well, it the, was the dancers yeah. themselves. It was the dancers. It was the costume, costume people, makeup, the makeup people, production, all the whole, that. The whole the whole crowd. So at that time, we were already open, and I think we had several buildings open. We were finishing the other buildings. And but we were leasing at the time, and I remember that we hired a manager, and uh, she was terrific. She was a great manager, and so I went back over to her and I said, "Hey, you know, I just met with the guys over here. This Rockette uh, are coming to the Flamingo to do a what do they call it? A they, they did a several, I guess, yeah. a, a, a term there. I don't know how long, several months or whatever, and uh, they uh, want to do uh, some, you know, short term lease and." They needed furnish. You know, they wanted silverware in the drawer. And we had a program. We had, I think we had 100 units set aside. And, you know, because a lot of times there'd be people going through divorces. <laughs> they walk out walk out of the house. They needed to go someplace where they didn't have to go to, uh, you know, 10 different places to buy bedding. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that was all right there in the, in the unit. So, so you pioneered uh, Airbnbs in Las Vegas. No, no. There was already a company doing it, actually. They'd go around to apartment complex and say, we'll set this up, we'll rent the units. And basically, there were companies that did that, set them up for their own. I forget the name of one of them, but mm-hmm. uh, they were doing it in the Las Vegas Country Club at that project there, and that's where the girl we hired to manage was working. That apartment complex in the Las Vegas Country Club there, yep. that had those units in there. And every guy going through a divorce lived there one time. <laughs> They'd leave the house, drive over there, and they were in there, they had towels and, you know, but anyway, so what ended up uh, happening was they made a deal, unbeknownst to me. I mean, I just kind of referred, and then they were talking together, the manager and the, the Rockettes people, and they worked it all out. And I was going through there a couple weeks later, and uh, one of the girls that was a leasing agent came to me and goes, you wouldn't believe it. He says, we got guys coming in here, and they don't even look at the lease they were just signing wherever they could sign. They'd look out the window and see those rockets out by the pool. <laughs> it was like there was no consideration how much rent they were paying or, or how long the lease was. Could have sold them, sold them ten year lease for you know twice what the rent was. But you know, total exaggeration. But uh, yeah. I thought that was a, interesting. What a way to kick it off, huh? Yeah, better than the uh, live where no man is living. Yeah, before. well, absolutely. Mar- yeah, we, we came we came up from there, so we had live uh, advertising in, in this case. So that was another aspect of that project that was unique, but fun. Only Vegas would that happen. Right. And that's what when you talk about the unique aspects of living here. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that just makes your time here so interesting. Where else would that happen? You know, would that happen in Omaha, Nebraska? Not that there's anything wrong with Omaha, but that's just what makes Vegas so special and entertaining and so uh, attractive of a place for, you know, things that wouldn't happen anywhere else happen here. Mm-hmm. And they happen over and over because it's got to... It's such, like part of our DNA and you yeah, come to expect it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, because it's a melting pot here. And uh, yeah, another thing I want to say about the title business that I neglected to um, emphasize... We talked about the fact that, you know, title companies are neutral third parties. And a title company is a is a remarkable active clearinghouse. You got buyers, sellers, lenders, all sorry about that. It's okay. Sorry. You got 
buyers, sellers, lenders, all converging. They're all coming through there at different times with transactions. So if you're in the marketing, your responsibility is marketing. All you have to do is watch who's coming in and out. And, you know, we've kept those mm-hmm. statistics, but you know who your customers are. And if your customer brought in somebody who wasn't your customer, pretty much common sense dictates you're going to reach out to that guy and say, hey, we did business with you once. Can we have your next deal? Mm-hmm. And that's how we followed up. That's and, also astute on your behalf, not to take something like that for granted. Yeah, It's like you see someone is bringing you a barrel of fish. Yeah. You could shoot the fish in the barrel, but you have right. to have the wherewithal to know that you can do that. And, you know, we did it respectfully, yeah. very respectfully. We didn't do it where we were just stalking people. I mean, my story about going to the commission meetings and, you know, walking out in the lobby, that's quasi-stalking, but well, I was, t- I was I, polite about it. I view it like this. So if you're in sales, there's, there's a finite amount of way that you can prospect. Mm-hmm. You can pick up the phone and cold call. Yeah. You can canvas. Like in our industry in real estate, I know where my clients are Right. if I'm calling on companies because they have real estate and you can walk through their front door. That's called, right. It's a different kind of prospecting. Yeah. It's canvassing. It's no different. You just, again, were smart enough back then to know I've got names over here in this microfish. There's applications over here. It's really going to, to the pond to find right. the kind of fish you want right. to find. Yeah. So it's not stalking. It's smart prospecting. And, and the marketing approach in those days, and you know, I'm not stereotyping the, the, uh, uh, the, the marketing effort, but it was take people to lunch, mm-hmm. spend money on them, buy them a few drinks. You know, it was that sort of tired kind of, well, let's have lunch. You know, I, I didn't really want to do that. I'd rather have a definite goal of meeting somebody, asking for their business. Mm-hmm. And I think you know this, being in marketing yourself and sales, you got to ask for the business. you got to ask for the business. We're not here to entertain each other. We're here to try to do business together. You got business. I want it. I got to ask you for it. Yeah. And I, I think I, and even to this day when I'm being approached, so I have quite a few people coming to me trying to sell me stuff now, I always sit there and go, when's this guy going to ask me? When's this guy going to ask me? <laughs> you know, that's how I kind of judge. Not that I, I think he's a bad salesman, but I just think that's, that's, that's Why critical. doesn't somebody do So they already did the work to get in front of you, right? which is, is a set of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they already did that. They're yeah. there. They have your attention. Why don't they ask if they don't? What do you there's think? different ways to do it. I think there's a there's a real sort of sincere way. Look, I really appreciate you can give me this deal. I just think they they get wrapped up in 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 in, in the in the um, element of not being confident enough to really just bring that up or mm-hmm. mention it. And I always did. I always felt like it was it was my job. It was it was expected of me. To always ask for the business, and or you do it in a way where you, you you ask in a different way. But there has to be an ask. Yeah, there has to be an ask. That's at part some of time. the like when you look at the ingredients of a sales conversation, yeah. whether it's a call or a meeting or what have you, there has to be an ask in yeah. whatever way that's comfortable for your style. Right, and 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 we were always underdogs. We were always competing with national firms. We were always underdogs, and we always were very uh, 
you know, considered the, the company that didn't really have all the resources. So you had to ask, you mm-hmm. had to ask, you had to be willing to um, sort of take away any barriers and say, Look, can you, and you don't say, I need this deal really, but it's, we really want to do business with you. We need this to be successful. We can work together for a long, any way you do it, any way you slice it. I think that's. I mean, uh, you coupled it with, in our industry, it's you have to add value. If you're yeah. cold calling, call with something of value. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mike Saltman example is a perfect mm-hmm. example. Yeah. You're calling on his business. He's already telling you, look, I'm loyal yeah, to somebody. Yeah, I, I can no problem. somebody else. And he's yeah. like, you know what, though? If Here's something you can help me with. He gave you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can't help him with something small like that, mm-hmm. what makes him think you can help him with something big when well, it comes to something else? Yeah, that's that's the proper so way you of did putting it. it. Yeah. So I don't expect anything from you. Yeah. I'm adding value. You asked for something. Here it is. Value, service, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And that clinched it for you. And it's just common sense that's your job and i don't know you know there's there's something about marketing where it's taken on this glorified image of you've got to do all this fabulous outside the box advertising and brochures and 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 everything's got to be set up where you can pitch somebody and they got to know everything there is to know about your company and it boils down to you sitting across from somebody and asking them for the business. And if you don't do that, I think you're basically the rest of it is just not effective. I mean, and you know, that's that's a seventy one year old guy talking, so that's probably an Oh you've done with, you've done pretty well coming with from the, uh, yeah. Well, Indiana I, I, to Vegas and getting I, I, two commas on that one deal. I'd, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think <laughs> so. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a, a very good ride. So um, um, yeah, I wanted to mention that little uh, Rockettes thing because that's a kind of an interesting little Vegas topic there. That's a, definitely a Vegas story. Yeah. You know, the what you just said is funny to me. Where I'm in real commercial real estate, as mm-hmm. you know, you um, you know we'll talk about receiverships in a bit, mm-hmm. but you know the players in our industry from that experience that you had, but also from the title business. Mm-hmm. I know a guy that. He went to UNLV here, Israeli guy, mm-hmm. went to UNLV here, uh, moved back to Israel, but started in the brokerage business here at a, call it an independent shop. Mm-hmm. He does pretty well from mm-hmm. a commission standpoint. Uh, in our industry, you know, there's, there's benchmarks of earnings and he does very, very well. No fancy brochure, no brand name behind him. It's him and his phone from Israel. And mm-hmm. the timing, the times are different. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up when it's morning here or starts his day, his work day over there when it's morning here, calls a bunch of people and is just putting together buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. There's nothing fancy about it. He's just very efficient, very direct, mm-hmm. puts things together, gets the information that he needs from here, mm-hmm. gives it over here, mm-hmm. does very, very well. Mm-hmm. The other side of the spectrum, you know, there's several global companies here in the market. Mm-hmm. They have every resource under the right. sun. You know, to say a brochure is an understatement for yeah. what they put together yeah. for the property. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's exactly what you just said. It doesn't matter all the hocus pocus I have and all this and that. You know, one of the takeaways from you is uh, it doesn't, you don't have to be around you very long to know, to know that you remember people, mm-hmm. their names, their stories, 
uh, their families, what they're about. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Twenty-one names I wrote as you were talking. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking, it's not like, oh, we did this deal with this company, Con Am. Yeah. You're saying the person's name. Right. Yeah. You're saying that person's name. At the end of the day, right. this is a people, people. business. We it are is. in front of people. And we start on this tangent because we talked about you have to just ask. It's very simple. Yeah. I got so a that's a takeaway light. from you. Yeah. I got a little sidelight for you. You mentioned the word commission. This was an interesting occurrence that happened one day. Uh, you know, I was still... You know, at the title company, I was working on the Meridian. I was doing all sorts of stuff. And there was one of the hotels was doing a big addition. And I won't mention it, but uh, I was called on uh, uh, by the guy I was basically working through. The title company was working with this guy on this. It was, at that time, probably $100 million. It was a loan to build a tower at, at this hotel. And uh, there was a prominent engineer in town who knew he was working on the project and he knew he knew me and I knew him and there was a guy that was part of the Riviera's I don't know where he fit in but he was prominent enough to go to the principals of this hotel and he was a, a, a very influential guy and so this guy set up a golf game at the country club, and it was he and I and this guy. And the guy said, well, you know, we got other stuff we're doing. And uh, I said, yeah, that's great to know. We're really anxious to do work with you. And he goes, what kind of commissioner do you have? And I said, for me? He goes, no, for me. <laughs> so I thought, huh, wait a minute. And, you know, my answer was, Nothing. Mm-hmm. We don't do. We don't. We don't do that. Uh, that's just something we just don't do. He goes, well, "Why not?" And I said, "You can't pay people to to do business with them. It doesn't make any sense." So that relationship uh, didn't last long. But we still ended up doing business with that uh, that property. So uh, it was uh, in a, it was a time when the, uh, there were certain people that uh, ran those places who were uh, had no real defined job description. <laughs> They were they were involved in the let's put it this way they were involved in certain aspects of management but nobody knew them and uh, uh, but that was always a great line is he said what kind of commission structure you got I said you mean my commission structure <laughs> he goes no talk about mine oh never thought of it really yeah you know so it's not uh, even legal is it for you to pay somebody who's not. Right, I don't think so. That comes I, up from it, time to time. Is also. it morally legal? Is it legally? Is it is it statutory legal? No, it, to, to, to basically bribe somebody to do business with them, it's wrong. We yeah we so there are lenders. You know, someone comes in from out of the market, wants to yeah. penetrate Las Vegas, yeah. and they say to you know they come to the brokerage community. Yeah. If you give us a loan, we will pay you a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not a mortgage broker. I don't have that license. I don't believe legally I'm allowed to accept mm-hmm. it, yet they still do it. Mm-hmm. And our answer has always been, ever since I was you know, a young agent new in the business to now, mm-hmm. if you can afford to charge a point, oh, I asked, yeah. I said, where does it come from? Oh, we just put it in on the, on the client side. Yeah. If you can afford to do that, why wouldn't you just wrap, like, give it to the client? Mm-hmm. Well, because I got to pay you for the business. Mm-hmm. Well, why would I do that? This is mm-hmm. my client. Why would right. I? Right charge them i'm getting paid right don't worry uh, i get why they're doing it but that never sat well it's a gray area for sure and 
You know, one of the things that to, to obtain access early on, we were just trying to get into the hotel properties. And, you know, these guys were in they're ensconced in their offices. And, and I mean, you, 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 you couldn't, there were security guards and you know, all these elements of getting to a decision maker. And through the casino personnel, you'd find out if somebody like another vendor was doing business with them. Some guy was selling them food or some mm-hmm. guy was doing work around there. Say, hey, you know this guy? The, can you know, make, get an appointment for me? Can you help me out? He says, yeah. You got 500 bucks? I'll help. <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with that. The guy wants to make a call, and you end up getting the getting the um, getting an appointment with a guy, and basically you've basically paid an admission fee. You know, and, and you it's end just up like saying, "Let's yeah, go get yeah. a round of golf," and I'm paying for it. Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's a fine line, gray area. It's sort of uh, you know policy situation, but uh, you know, in 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 some cases, this, that's another. I think it probably happens in all cities, but mm-hmm. something about Vegas was. You know, cash is king. There's a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy. If you want to get to that guy, there's got to be a little bit of uh, uh, grease, uh, a little bit of grease yeah. for, for me. It's like it's like tipping a mater d. It's right. no different. You, you know, the mater d is putting you in a good seat, and you're going to get a nice view. So you're tipping a mater d to get you an appointment with uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the guy that's uh, the CFO or the uh, general counsel of the of the property. So yeah. one way of looking at it. So I know that you were involved in Macau in some form or fashion. What is yeah. that? How did you get well, the involvement, from Vegas to Macau? Well, I didn't go there as a resident, but uh, back in when, when Macau cranked up back in, oh, the early 2000s, or 2005, six, they were already up and going there. Uh, we had some friends, some guys that went over there and worked for uh, MGM, uh, Wynn, and worked for uh, the Venetian, uh, the uh, Sands Corporation, mm-hmm. who was the market leader, way out ahead of everybody else. And this one uh, gentleman we knew, um, he said, "One, you know, he said you could come over here, Mike, and walk down the street with a yellow legal pad and write down businesses you could get in." And he said, "You don't have anything here. We don't have anybody who washes windows." We, he says, "We need a laundry, and we're in China." You know, it was like, what? So, you know, just off the cuffs, well, you know, don't know anything about but real estate. Is there any real estate you could? Well, the hotels decided that these employees, in a lot of cases, were imports. Because Macau's, you know, 500,000 people. You had these enormous casinos being built. And you had some apartments there, but mostly it was these old buildings. You know, it was old Portuguese colony, and they were stacked in there tightly in little narrow streets everywhere. And, and you know, there wasn't anything opening up. There were some high-rise condos. Employees can't afford to live in those to rent or buy. So uh, the hotels were, were, you know, they didn't want people crossing the border to go to work. And a lot of their workers were imported. Like, for example, they would sign employment contracts with uh, with maids, and a lot of them would be from the Philippines. Or they'd sign contract with uh, security guards, and a lot of those guys would be from India. And they'd sign a contract. They'd come to Macau to work, and they would have to housing was included in their in their package, basically through hmm. through like employment agencies. And we we studied all that, and then. 
we had a, a, a partner in our group of four guys who, who, who actually went to school in uh, born and raised in Las Vegas and went to school up at uh, uh, outside of Monterey there. What's that? Uh, John, John Lewis Stevens, Robert Lewis Stevenson. And he uh, learned Mandarin, studied Mandarin and learned Mandarin. He spoke Mandarin. And he wanted to move over there. And so we started looking around and we found a property and we showed it to uh, a couple of the casino companies and said, you know, this, will this work? And uh, it was like a five-story building, and it was like, I believe it was like uh, 16 or 17 condos. They were single floor, uh, half a floor each, and uh, uh, a couple different floor plans. And uh, what the hotels wanted to do was take those and turn those into a place where they could house maybe 50, 60, 70 people. And what they do would be, they basically had bathroom on every floor, and what they would do is configure them so that each person had some privacy. Their bed would be on a 90-degree angle with a wall, and they had hallways. And So it wasn't a dorm where you had a big row of beds. They were all configured so there was an element of privacy but mm-hmm. they could maximize the amount and then they'd put showers down below they put a, 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 a computer uh, like a business center and a gym in them and so we leased uh, these projects or these properties to win for five-year leases and we would buy the property and then uh, win would do all the work to prepare it for their use and we had basically uh, very little responsibility other than collect rent and make sure that the you know nothing was you know wrong in terms of our ability to to be owners over there. And uh, so we bought a couple properties. One in particular was very successful. We borrowed money from a from a Portuguese bank uh, in Macau that was headquartered in Lisbon, Portugal. The uh, process was was very straightforward and you're always looking for problems when you're in a foreign country particularly mm-hmm. uh somewhere controlled uh, you know chinese and you know macau is not the glamorous uh place hong kong is macau is kind of you know it's got its own issues it's uh not on par with hong kong which is a worldwide financial center it's a uh, down the road that has gambling and now it's taken off tremendously because of the American influence there and American investment in Macau, and so we were we were treated well there. We were not concerned about you don't know you don't know some guy might walk up to you while you're walking down the street and say you don't own that building anymore. Mm-hmm. Never happened. Not even close. We we received good uh, cooperation. Sounds like there's an opportunity for you there with some title insurance. No, uh, they, they've got a different world over there. It doesn't work that way I'm over kidding. there. The government owns the title. No, not not to say. But you know, we sold the projects to Chinese nationals. Uh, the process over there is, is interesting buying real estate because your money goes hard as soon as they accept the offer. Oh, no, wow. They don't playing around with, uh, you know, I need this due diligence period and all that, they sign the offer, your your money, which is, you know, six figures, easy. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't take any. They're, they're not uh, letting you have a free look. It's basically your money goes hard. You buy it or lose it. And, of course, there was strong demand there then. We got in kind of early, so we didn't have a lot of competition. 
but uh, you know, we kind of worked through it, and it worked out to be great investment, and we made a, a very good return on our on our investment. And I had to go over there multiple times and uh, work on different things. We renewed the lease, and we had some issues. We were always looking at other stuff. And uh, then we finally sold it, and you had to go over there and sign documents like three times while the sale's going on so they know you're still re- able to sign and turn over mm-hmm. the uh, property. And we had a, a Portuguese lawyer, and the documents were in Mandarin, English, and, uh, and uh, Portuguese. But uh, it was a great experience, and, and uh, uh, I had had some exposure, as uh, I think you already know. Uh, Mike Saltman sent me to Europe. Uh, on a on a uh, I didn't know yeah a mission so to speak and uh, so I had some experience uh, about 20 years yeah. before going to Macau shortly uh, after uh, we, uh, we, we this was before we built the Renaissance Villas Mike was building the shopping centers the Renaissance centers mm-hmm. and this was in 80, 80 84 we started Renaissance Villas in 86 so Mike uh went to London School of Economics. He went to law school in, in Detroit and uh, um, graduated from Michigan State, went to Detroit. Uh, I think he went to Wayne State Law School. And then he got accepted to London School of Economics. So he went over there and went to work and uh, uh, got his, uh, whatever it is, his degree from London School of Economics. And he put an ad in the in the uh, Herald Tribune, the international newspaper. He came back from a short trip and his mailbox was stuffed with letters and boxes and everything and he got an offer to go to work for a fund that raised european capital to invest in the u.s it was by a, a sort of a guy that was a controversial guy named bernie cornfeld and it was called the fund of funds or something like that so it, it was this creative way of extracting capital from europeans to invest in u.s real estate and Mike was a young lawyer in that organization, and he worked with guys all over Western Europe and had a couple friends there. And and uh, so he was back in Las Vegas. He had been in Las Vegas since the mid '70s. Kept in contact with these guys. And when interest rates were high here, you know, developers they just can't write ten million dollar mm-hmm. checks and do deals. In order to do multiple deals, you got to have some capital at your disposal to continue on and do another deal here and there where you basically create a partnership where they get, they're taking developer risk. So they get developer return. Their capital's treated as your capital. You get your fees, but they participate in the upside on an equal basis. So the idea was to go over there and raise money from wealthy individuals in, in Europe. And there was a, a, a guy in Rome that Mike knew who had lived in Rome, and he had all these contacts with these wealthy uh, Italians. There was a guy in, 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 in uh, Holland in a town called Nijmegen near Amsterdam. He was well-connected. And there was a guy in London, and we had few guys. So the idea was go to those networks and see if we can bring some capital back here to Las Vegas and build more Renaissance centers and some additional projects to basically capitalize on on those relationships and 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 so I wasn't married had no kids and uh, so I said we need somebody to go over there and and pitch Las Vegas or basically 
tell these investors, you're a guy from Las Vegas, you'll tell them what they need to know, answer their questions, show them where the property is. And then if they do invest, when they come over, you can be the guy that basically takes them around and basically makes sure that uh, they're, you know, mm-hmm. obviously taken care of. And, you know, not that it needed me for all that, but it was make contact, basically. And the guys over there, they couldn't sell it. I had to be the guy who explained all the ins and outs of what it takes to develop property in Las Vegas. So so uh, Mike said, you know, you got to go over there. I went to Terry Wright, and I said, hey, <laughs> Mike saw wants me to go to Europe about, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, six weeks out of every uh, two months. And uh, he goes, just so you come back here on a regular basis and you stay for a couple weeks, whatever we got to cover, we'll cover it. So God bless you. Again, this is not a time where there's email and constant. No, no, no. You're no, off no, the grid. No. You're gone. Yeah, you come I'm back. Gone. I'm gone. Well, I mean, we could talk by phone, by but it was phone, so difficult. Right, that, yeah. and all that stuff. It's probably so expensive anyway, as heck. So anyway, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, you know, 38 cents a minute or something, even more. But um, so anyway, Mike uh, uh, they, and these guys came over to Vegas. So we met and kind of patched a plan and they would. You know, so where where would I go? You had uh, you know the the uh, the guy in Amsterdam. You had a guy in London. You had a guy in Rome. <laughs> so where should I go? And I said, "How about Monte Carlo?" <laughs> because one of the guys knew a guy in Monte Carlo who was a stockbroker. He's a French guy, and uh, <laughs> so we contacted this French guy. Sounds like and a movie. His name was Andre Olbrich. He was a very, very high class, just a, just the absolute uh, picture perfect quintessential Frenchman. So uh, spoke very good English and was really you know very fit guy and very polished and and he lived in Monaco. He had a bunch of clients from all over the place, mainly Turkish guys who were extremely wealthy manufacturing guys, and 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 so. Uh, I said, well, let me come over there and kind of look around. It might be a good place for an American because, you know, a lot of people speak English there and it's, uh, you're, you're not so, you're not going to stand out so much. I did, but didn't know it at the time. So I went over there and uh, they put me on like a monthly stipend and I had to find a place to live. <laughs> so I went over and looked around and moved into this high rise with an ocean view and the rent wasn't that bad. I had no furniture, I had like a bed on the floor. And, uh, you know, one week I'd go to Rome and meet with all these manufacturers and business guys who spoke no English. And a lot of them were what I call, I don't, not derogatory, but they were dirty fingernail guys. They owned factories. Mm-hmm. They owned businesses that they made dinner plates and they made carts that you went back and forth to the grocery store. And But they were wealthy guys, yeah. very wealthy guys. And... At the time, there were all these banking, or still are, bank uh, restrictions where you can't invest capital outside the country. A lot of them had Swiss accounts where they drove the money up to uh, uh, different areas in Switzerland and deposited it and then could transfer it from there. And remember the whole Sophia Loren thing where she was arrested for investing outside of Italy and it made a lot of – that was just Mm -hmm. kind of – remind people that you're not supposed to do this without getting government permission. So uh, the the Dutch were more entrepreneurial. They were more international. They had bank accounts outside. And, 
and the British, of course, were were were, were not that way. But Italy and France had uh, currency restrictions. So anyway, you know, we would meet these people, tell them how things worked in Las Vegas. They got interested. They would get down to the wire, and then they we raised several million dollars over there. But the aspect of it that was unfortunate was the dollar was setting records over there at the time. The dollar to the uh, currency in Europe. That was before the euro. That was all individual currencies. It was so expensive for them to invest because it was the reverse. They couldn't invest their dollars in, at a premium. It was so expensive for them to convert to dollars that it sort of made it less attractive for them because mm-hmm. of the expensive going in. So we, we our timing wasn't any good. But, you know, there were a group of Italians who actually invested quite a bit of money and uh, they were part of the equity that Mike put together for his uh, his, his his projects. And uh, so I spent almost two years over there going back and forth, back and forth. Talk about a commute. Yeah, it's quite a commute. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> no, it, was, it was terrific. At that point in your life yeah, to have was, that well, is you an know, adventure. You, what's better than being on the French Riviera? I right. Mean, uh, you know, it was very nice. And 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 you know it's the same old thing. I made friends easy. I could met there was hardly any Americans there, but there were American guys working in the casinos in in Monaco. And I met a couple of guys. They had worked in Vegas, various places, and and huh. so got to know a few of those guys. And uh, and uh, uh, so to this day, friends of people that we still you know exchange Christmas cards every once in a while. And uh, but I got to learn those cities pretty well, and and really in, enjoyed it for the experience. But the business sort of basically kind of ran out of gas because yeah. of that currency exchange issue. So then when I came back, that's when we uh, went after the the uh, Renaissance Villas thing, the apartment, the mm-hmm. large apartment complex. And, and that and went on from out. there. Yeah, it went on from there. So, yeah, those were, uh, those were interesting times. Selfishly, I want to ask you about Carol. Yeah. And then I'll ask you a final question, and then we'll wrap up okay. if that's okay. So Carol, for anyone who doesn't know, is my business partner here at MDL Group. Yes. I came here 10 years ago uh, to be her partner. She co-founded this company in 1989 yes. with Kurt Anderson. So you and Carol have known each other since the Nevada title days. Yes, nineteen. I'd say 1979, 1980. And she was a uh, personnel, was her title. Nowadays, it's human resources. Nobody knew what human resources was in 1980, but Carol was a very organized, very uh, effective person as a young lady. In the title company, about usually 80% of your employees are are, are female because they're doing escrow work and Mm -hmm. title searches. And at that time, you had typists, and there were whole rooms full of of, of ladies doing, doing the work. And, you know, obviously the guys were more, there were a few title officers and marketing guys were mostly men and, and different. Uh, uh, but there were, there were so many things that Carol had to do, making sure women were dressed properly, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm not going to go into detail, but some, she had to do her job. And sometimes it was thankless mm. and she wasn't very popular because of mm. some girl had the wrong length skirt on or, or wasn't properly wearing what she should have been wearing and uh, or she looked uh, un, uh, you know very uh, 
um, she didn't. She didn't. Uh, her appearance was 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 not acceptable for some reason or other. And Carol was she was an enforcer. She she was diligent and very impressive for somebody that young. And she was, I guess, early twenties at that time. And you could tell she had this ability to be um, what I would call a, a really good manager of, of people and honest, and she was trustworthy, honest, and did the right thing with people, treated everybody the right way. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought, the, uh, uh, you know, I always remembered her for those, those uh, uh, traits. That's kind of her as a professional. How would you describe her as a person? She's uh, wonderful. She's, uh, she remembers names very well. She's gracious, uh, outgoing, and selfless. She's not at all wrapped up in her own world and she's always got time for you always returns phone calls and you know you've got a great partner there i'm not just saying that because it's you and i i really feel that way and and and, uh her and i were never buddy buddy we've just always had reason to be in touch with one another Mm -hmm. and uh i I always uh you know her success is proof and uh like i said when i was doing all those receiverships this is the first door I knocked on because I knew that if she was involved in a company that I could rely because, you know, when doing those receiverships, you're an officer of the court. You have to basically do your job and report to a judge on a monthly basis. And all those properties have to be handled the right way. And the documentation and everything that goes into it had to be done by people who were well-trained and could basically support the, the, the program. And I knew Anything that came out of her operation yeah. was going to be that way, and it, it it's you know it was true, hundred percent. So I have a final question: uh, Is there anything else you want to talk about or mention before we? Well, we if wrap you want up? to do the receivership stuff, we can do that. If you want to talk about that, you tell me because well, we've been like here for a little while. How are you on time? Well, I can just say uh, I got. I don't. You, you're the one that's probably got no time. I'm good. I don't care. What do you want to do? You want me to do a couple of receivers? Tell us a crazy receivership story. Well, there's a bunch of crazy ones, but uh, uh, you know, back in uh, 09, 08, 09, things went down. The GFC Global Financial Crisis hit Las Vegas like an absolute hurricane. Ground zero. Har- hurricane, tornado, earthquake, all at once. As far as real estate values, real estate debt, real estate in general. And uh, I had done a, a, a receivership for uh, Judge Don Mosley back in the 90s, and I didn't even know what a receivership was. I walked into his office, and there were three chairs there. He said, sit in the middle chair. <laughs> brought in two attorneys, and, and they, were, they came in with their suits on with big files under their arms, sat down next to me on both sides. And judge looked at me and goes, Mike, this is so-and-so and so-and-so. Gentlemen, this is your receiver. So are we going to play touch football? What, what, receiver? what? Wait a minute. I, he goes, Mike's a, a contractor, a real estate guy, and I respect him, and he's going to report to me. I'm on, I got this court order here. I'm going to give him. And these guys were handling a, a, a case of, a, of, a, of the Glass Pool Motel on the Las Vegas Strip. Oh, yeah. That pool where the people wave. Mm-hmm. There's a dispute, family dispute going on, and – Nobody wanted to see the guy that was running it, putting money in his pocket. So mm-hmm. I had to go in there and, you know, every step of the way, the judge helped me with it. But uh, anyway, that was in like 94. Well, when this thing hit in 2007, 2008, I somehow or another was known to be 
a receiver. I started getting calls from lawyers. I started getting calls from banks. I started getting calls from people I didn't even know saying, we need a receiver for this deal or that deal because, as you know, every deed of trust, there's a default. The lender has a right to appoint a receiver. And nobody wanted to see these owners that were not paying their mortgage or not paying anything, any upkeep. They weren't paying for any vendors. They weren't paying property tax. They let So the they would just take the money from the tenants and, and the not tenant, upkeep the property, not, uh, yeah, not uphold yeah, their commitments. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically... Time was of the essence to get in there and basically make sure you could stop the bleeding and present them with a court order. And and uh, a lot of times they were hostile. Mm-hmm. You were in there and basically saying, you need to leave. I'm taking over. And I would go to the bank, take over their bank account, court order, present that. It would go through a few guys at the bank. All of a sudden, I was on the bank account. Mm-hmm. So I go to the tenants and explain to them what had to be done and who I was and all that. So it was a it was a hard job. It was a face to face for the most part. But that time and place, it was like drinking from a fire hose. It was they were coming in at such rapidity. I would have five or six at a time, and it got to the point where uh, I just couldn't really do any more than like two or three at a time, depending on the properties. I had hotels, I had motels, I had office buildings, I had shopping centers, I had convenience stores, just every form of, of, of commercial real estate. And, you know, some of them had employees and you don't want to lo- see mm. people lose their jobs. So you try to keep them running. And your job as a receiver is to, you're neutral. You're not working for the lender. You're not working for anybody but the property. You're working for the court. Your job is to prevent loss, prevent that property from losing and you know, had to keep the fire alarm. You had, you know, mm-hmm. that's no, critical stuff. And you know, that, some of that, these, that you would take for granted if you yeah. didn't do and, it like you did. Yeah, yeah. And, and and some of it was unbuilt. Uh, construction was was being done without permits. A lot of things were really, really out of out of out of whack, bad. And uh, so you know, I would go in there and try to correct as much as I could. I'd put a budget together and present it to the lender because they're responsible for making these payments because they're the ones who sued to get me appointed. And my my boss was a judge, and we had great judges in the business court element that handled these cases, and they were uh, outstanding to, to work with. And I would get hearings in, in short notice, and I had a very good lawyer then who's now retired. And uh, so we were really Zamalia. Tony Zamalia, yeah. Tony Zamalia. Tony was great. Tony, I that met, name I remember. How about I that? I met Tony when he was general counsel at the Dunes. How about that? Wow. Yeah, he was general counsel at the Dunes in Nevada Title. We worked on a deal between <laughs> the the, the uh, guys that owned Caesars, uh, um, and uh, they were buying the uh, the Dunes at one time, and the deal kind of fell apart. But uh, any yeah. of the kids listening to this, you should go Google the Dunes and see where it's at. Yeah, yeah. Well, Morris Schenker was the main guy that ran it, and. Uh, uh, I forget the name. Perlman, the Perlman brothers were the guys that owned Caesars, and they were trying to buy the Dunes, and Tony was in the middle of it. And the, and the, at the time, the Dunes was in bankruptcy, so it was really interesting. One quick title story <laughs> about those days was they were doing everything they could. Morris Schenker was the most creative guy ever, ever to set foot in Las Vegas when it came to financing. And he got somebody to loan him, like, or not him, loan the property a million dollars on a utility easement. 
it was a shaft that went under the casino that had some pipes <laughs> in it, and somebody loaned him a million bucks. We had to go, Robbie Graham and I, who was a great lady, who was a title officer at, at, at Nevada Title, Robbie and I had to go inspect it <laughs> so we could put a title policy on it. But anyway, so Tony Tony and I knew each other then, and then we reunited. But uh, but uh, anyway, he knew his way around the court mm-hmm. very well. He was a re- highly respected guy, and um, you know, there's nothing really positive about a receivership. It, it yeah. really isn't. It's it, it's like being. You know, it was kind of glamorized a, back then because yeah. that was where a lot of the real estate deals took place. Yeah, they did. And when you were a receiver, you know, you and I know a few mm-hmm. people. Some were very good. Some mm-hmm. not so good. Yeah. That. Uh, got themselves to be receivers. Mm-hmm. It was a it was an interesting time. You know, real estate went from private ownership to receivers mm-hmm. and servicers. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. we you know, we were calling on you know the within every bank there's a workout department, yeah. and it went from like one guy right who never had anything to do much mm-hmm. to do to right. departments. Yeah, and you know being young, kind of like you were connecting the dots when mm-hmm. you were a young professional yeah, in the title yeah. business. At that time in real estate, it's where mm-hmm. where are the properties? Where is right. the decision maker? And we would call these workout people mm-hmm. and set appointments yeah. with them and sit outside their office until they had time to meet with us and, and see yeah. however however we can help them. Because nobody knew there was a period where nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew because it came right. with such velocity. Right, right. They were just everywhere. And then you had these these uh, um, what I would call opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Organizations like Rialto Capital mm-hmm. and Colony mm-hmm. Capital that were buying the notes from the FDIC, they would get a, you know, a whole uh, right. internet list, and then they'd bid on it, and then they'd split whatever came out of the sale with mm-hmm. the FDIC. And then you had some local banks and and banks uh, in LA that were doing one-off deals, and then you had some banks in the Midwest, and they didn't know anything about receiverships. Right. And I would say, I need twenty thousand dollars to preserve this property. And they said, 20,000? How for how for a year? I said, no, for a month. And they'd say, well, we can't do that. Then what do you want me in here for? What am yeah. I supposed to do? This property's underwater. It's got it owes everybody. You know, the good news is the the utilities and those court orders were so well crafted by, you know, over over the years. That, you know, you present them to Nevada Power. Nevada Power knew that they'd get paid at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, the water district and all those people, the tax authority. You know, it takes a long time before they go to sale, and so I would make those rounds. But you know, when it comes to the, the fire alarms and the general services to the tenants, you've basically got to keep the place clean, and you've got to collect the rents and basically uh, service the property. And so. Uh, some of the some of the receivers were were not that experienced in the day to day aspect like you guys are property management. They just wanted thought it would be an easy deal, and then they flip it and sell it real fast. Yep. Never really those deals were few and far between. And but, you can get uh, yourself in trouble because again, like you said, you don't work for one yeah, party yeah, or another. No, no, you no, are no. court appointed. In fact, I think the statute was revised because of some bad boy stuff a couple guys did, and uh, there was some controversy over it. And I think the actual statute that governs receivers was modified to make sure that those were made totally illegal. Uh, but I never, you know, and uh, I hate to say this here in this context, but. The calls are already have come in. A are they? Times. Yeah, I've gotten a couple of calls. But at my station in life and age, I am going to be pretty selective if I do them. 
Uh, you learned a lot, huh? I learned a lot, yeah. <laughs> but my, my activity now is, you know, I'm a consultant. I work for uh, my client is the Spanos Corporation, which is a, uh, a large uh, development company that's based in Stockton, California. And over the years, in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s, they built about 20,000 apartments here in Las Vegas very, very actively. They uh, took a quite long break and then... Uh, um, I showed them property in uh, various parts of town, and finally we have two deals going now in uh, Cadence, which is mm-hmm. in Henderson, which is the rebuild of the old area that was once BMI, BL, BMI property, very successful master plan there. And we've got two, uh, two great projects, four-story, uh, uh, beautiful, uh, high-end projects in that, in that master plan. We're really excited about it, and... Uh, so that keeps me busy now, and uh, I spend quite a bit of time on the job, and uh, uh, we're looking for more deals. We're always looking for land deals, and we think now there's a little softening in land prices. So uh, uh, we're out there looking for multifamily land. Uh, so, so you're back on the microfish again. Um, no, I, 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 I think I'm beyond microfish now, but... Uh, no, just uh, you know, I'm enjoying my my time being a being a, a development advisor is is uh, is my best description, I think. And uh, um, you know what I what I try to do is basically take my experience and monetize it into mm-hmm. something that benefits a a company that needs those kind of services because a lot of times they don't have anybody on staff that can basically bring things together here, and particularly if they're an out of state player. Yeah. So I think there's a, a need for that, but uh, I'm very selective, and uh, you know, uh, you've earned it. Stay that way. You've earned it to be yeah. selective. Yeah. So let me ask you this: as a last question, you moved here as a young man over 40 years ago. Yeah, 44. And you, and you you made your way in this unique, one of the four unique cities, as according to Mark Twain. Only three, he said. I know. Though, I you you amended it to a fourth. Yeah. Right. I did. I said if he were alive. In the 20th century, yeah. which I think he was for a while, wasn't he? Didn't he die in the early 1900s? I don't even know. I shouldn't know. I'd that. have to Google it. I yeah. don't know. He lived in Carson City. He ran the newspaper in Carson City there. Remember that whole deal, Roughing It? Did you read that book? Nope. Terrific book. It's about his travel across country to Nevada. I'm going to write that one down. Roughing It. Roughing It. Fantastic book about so, riding in a stagecoach all the way out across the Rocky Mountains and ended up in Carson City, Nevada. Of all places. Of all places, yeah. Really. No, so I, I figured you gave a friendly amendment and he didn't object. So it's the fourth unique city, according to Mark Twain. That's my opinion. He would say that if he were describing cities in America today. <laughs> when you think about it, it's true. It's true. You know, it is. So what advice would you give a young professional in Las Vegas today trying to make their way? Be honest. Always be willing to go out of your way to improve your knowledge by attending whatever seminars or events. Meet as many people as you can without being obnoxious to the point where you're, 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 you're walking up to anybody who uh, can fog up a mirror and shake in their hand. Uh, have basically a, a you know a a, a, a a ability to speak to strangers, which I think is important. How to introduce yourself and 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 be polite and be uh, uh, 
willing to listen to other people tell you about their life and ask them questions about their life and what they do. And, uh, you know, I've done all this talking about myself here, Mm -hmm. but I think the best policy would be always ask people about themselves because everybody likes to talk about themselves. So if you want to meet meet people and and become uh, uh, friendly with a multitude of people, get to know them by asking them about their their life, and I think uh, it leads to success down the road. And uh, whatever path you choose, you got to work with other people unless you're uh, want to be in a lighthouse or be an astronaut, uh, you know. <laughs> so uh, get used to it. And I think nowadays, I'm going to throw this in, there's so much in, in, lost, what I call interpersonal relationships. That's been sort of lost on mm-hmm. social media and all these platforms and all this stuff. And I know I sound like a you know codger, but uh, it's, I think it's, it's changed. It's not as personal. People are always trying to either show off or get some kind of acknowledgement through something that they might have never really did much but they mm-hmm. say they did and uh, it just seems a little bit of a, of a you know everything's everybody's a promoter everybody's uh, wants to be known as something that they exaggerated about themselves so that's unnerving and the other thing that I uh, see that is uh, not what I would call uh, it's unpleasant to me is what I call keyboard cowboys, the people who sit and bang out emails of hundreds, even thousands of words about something, whether you're arguing over something or whether it's just so, in my opinion, it's not polite. It's not, there's nothing about it that's productive. And they they don't realize is that emails forever. Mm-hmm. That's forever. Somebody's got that somewhere. And if you go off on somebody or you make statements about somebody and you yeah. communicate with somebody, somebody somewhere has got that. And I always think about that before I hit a send button. How does this sound? And keep them short. And I think that's that's what I see. And, and you know, not besides the grammar and syntax that you see sometimes, and you just go, what's this person thinking? How can they sit and write that? Why don't you call me on the phone? Let's talk about this. What do you? What do you? It's sort of they hide behind that element of technology. It's the greatest productivity uh, that we have is you know email, internet, technology in general, and now the upcoming artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrific, and it should continue. But I think there's a element of it that's just is is not what human beings should be how they should be interacting. Yeah. There's an element of that that I think is dangerous and is it's almost counterproductive. And uh, so my keyboard cowboy uh, description stands. All right. Well, hopefully, like most things, the pendulum will swing back to where it's supposed to go. Or go further in the wrong direction, yeah. which I hope is not the case. Uh, at the end of the day, I believe people are people, and we come back to where we're supposed to. All right. But thank you so much for this. It was a lot of fun to learn more about you. I've got, uh, you know, there's some of the takeaways that we already talked about, but I'll emphasize a few more. Mm -hmm. You know, Dale Carney, you talked about interpersonal communication. 
I the top certificate there I took an, a Dale Carnegie yeah. Effective Communication and uh, Human, Human Relations uh, course. And Dale Carnegie has a saying, a person's name is the sweetest sound they can hear, which is what you said. So one thing about you is you always remember people's names. I do. You know their stories. And I'm adding here, you're a dot connector. I didn't realize to what level you are, but because you are curious about people, you've been able to connect many dots and it's done, I believe, you and your family very, very well. Well, networking is the buzzword now, but, you know, it's natural to me. It works naturally. You know, I was an only child, and I remember my dad telling me, he says, you better learn to make friends <laughs> because you're not going to have any brothers and sisters, so you better go out and make friends. So I just sort of said, well, yeah, that's right. You know, you got to go out and meet people, and you are not don't have built-in family and all this stuff. So I think that helped me, too, because I was always someone who was willing to meet people and be friendly to them. I was never one of these sort of antisocial guys. I always felt like I had... Better, a uh, uh, better life by having friends, and not just friends, but close friends. Yeah, and it served me, I think, well that uh, that came to pass. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.